Money is the measuring stick that you and I use to make decisions, right? It's the thing that tells us, do I save money? Do I spend money? Do I invest? Do I hire somebody? Do I run this ad? Money is just a measuring stick to say, uh, like I said, to help us to take action, right? Yeah, kind of like a science value. It gives us the ability to know whether or not, yeah, to make a decision. It gives us yeah, the, it's, to, it's whether or not to make a good decision. Yeah. yeah, it's how we're keeping score. You are now entering a new paradigm. So here is my issue. I wanted to find the answers to life's biggest questions. Things like, how do I become happy and live with purpose? How do I make more money doing what I love? And what does it mean to be truly successful in all areas of life? My name is Josh Forty, at Josh Forty on Instagram, and I ask life's biggest questions and share the answers with you. My goal is to help you find purpose, happiness, and open your mind to new realms of possibility by helping you think differently about everything you do, know, and understand. On this podcast, we think different, we dream bigger, and we live in a world without limits. This is a new paradigm. Welcome to the Think Different Theory. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Think Different Theory. My name is Josh Forty, and we did it. We made it to 100 episodes. Welcome back to episode number 100. If you are new to the program, thank you for being here. I feel like I should have like some confetti streamer things that I can like go and shoot off and be like, yay, or at least a button I can push to make things clap. But guys, we did it. Uh, super exciting. Episode number 100. And I will say that we have officially crossed over, which is super big because uh, I crossed over. I'm going to tell you the number here of downloads in just a second. But when we first started the podcast, of course, you launch, it blows up. You get all, all sorts of awesome, cool downloads because there's all sorts of hype around it. And it goes, meow, takes kind of a dip. And then you got to kind of crawl your way back up. But we're on an upward trajectory. It's been amazing. We have officially crossed over 50,000 downloads without paid advertising. And now we have advertising started for the, the Mindship Playbook. We have thousands of people on the daily podcast update list now since uh, ever since the Mindship Playbook launched. So we are on the uphill trajectory. It has been awesome. And we're getting, uh, getting just tons of cool people in here. So guys, thank you so much. Um, we do have some cool, super cool stuff. If you want to head over to, I had to do it off of my own URL, but if you go to josh40.com, slash 100, josh40.com slash 100. There's a, a super little surprise little page for you guys there uh, with a super cool thing that we're, we're doing. So anyway, uh, make sure to go check that out, josh40.com slash 100. And I'm super excited for today because not only is it episode 100, which is so super cool, we also have probably the, the guest that I'm most excited to interview that I've ever done. Now, I, I want to say I've done some really cool interviews and I've loved every single one of them, but I have a unique um, reason for loving and being excited about this interview. Our next guest I've actually talked to before. I've met and I've sat down in him and had, gosh, it was a couple hour, couple of hour long conversation um, over dinner with him and he absolutely just blew my mind. If you guys know anything about me, I'm obsessed with learning about uh, money and how money moves and how money works, also the economy and just wealth creation and in, in general and educating people on that. And my next guest is someone who is one of the smartest, if not, he's probably the smartest person I've ever met when it comes to this type of stuff. He used to work for Goldman Sachs and managed hundreds of millions of dollars for them. He quit to come and help 
the little guy, if you want to say that. Help the, the entrepreneur out there to go and uh, create financial freedom, do smart investing, has been uh, absolutely just done an absolutely amazing, amazing things, helped thousands and thousands of people. He advises and does wealth, uh, wealth assessment or wealth management for a lot of people in like the inner circle and, and people like, and I don't want to speak to this without verification, so he'll have to correct me on this. I think for Russell Brunson and people like that, um, and it's just an amazing, amazing human. Um, and I've been very blessed to get to know him. I want to welcome to the program, Mr. Brad Gibb, the founder or co-founder of Cashflow Tactics. Brad, welcome to the program, dude. Josh, that's a huge honor, man. I really appreciate everything you said. This is to have me on the 100th episode and the things you said. I looked back, like I listened to a bunch of your podcasts. I scrolled through and you got some big names on there. So I, yeah, that's a huge honor for me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate that. And we, we have, we've had some amazing people on the podcast. I'm super excited to add you to that list and not to downplay any of them at all because right. uh, they were all amazing. Uh, this just happens to be a topic I'm super passionate about. And um, I, I think for me, more than anything, our conversation in Boise, just, it was a conversation I feel like every single human being ever needs to understand, at least if you live in America and want to be wealthy of any sort. Um, and so I can't wait to dive into that. But actually, let's, let's just start off. Let's back up. How, how you been, dude? It's been what, two, three months since I saw you? Yeah, we blinked. And then like three months went by. So it's, I'm, yeah, I'm just in that stage uh, that every entrepreneur, I think, finds themselves in time to time. Like, it, it depends on like what hour of the day you ask me. And it's like, it's amazing. It's terrible. It's amazing. It's terrible. It's just that it's trying to grow through the, the shifts we're going through. So when I step back, man, everything is incredible. We built some amazing things, had some amazing breaks. Um, and taking advantage of some amazing opportunities and, and we're doing, I mean, living the life I love. Um, but as every entrepreneur knows, um, growing a business next to being married and having kids, it's probably like the most spiritually personality, like personal development wise demanding thing I've ever done. And it just repeatedly crushes me and gives me the chance to, to grow and reinvent myself. So it, yeah, I love that. I, lo I mean, you know, Steve Larson, obviously. And I mean, he uh -huh. says, you know, entrepreneurship is the greatest personal development you never signed up for. Um, and and it's because you're faced with reality every day. There's every no day. getting around it. And it's, you can't fake it. You can't hide it. Everything catches up with you. And so you're Everything. forced to level up. It's fun. It's fun. It's fun. Let's dive into who you are, though. I think this is really important to set the tone because I just want to have like, I'm treating this conversation as like another conversation that you and I are having because I just think that if I go in and I try to do too much interview style, right, you just lose the authenticity of like the conversation. But I do think it's very important to set the tone and set the context for who you are and what you've done and kind of your background because whenever you talk about money and you talk about you know, wealth creation and laws and, and strategies. I think credibility, especially in today's market, really does play a role. So I want you to boast on yourself. I know that's not your style, right? But like, I want you to, to kind of give us some context of what you've done and who you are so that people just understand that. Yeah, absolutely. So to kind of, we'll rewind the clock even before um, my stint with the evil empire at Goldman Sachs. Uh, <laughs> and we'll, we'll even back up before that. So I always just, was fascinated with processes, was fascinated with, with a, a model of thinking through getting an outcome. And so when I, uh, when I went to college, I had, it, it's interesting because I, I was like this, I hid the entrepreneur in me for a long time. Um, I grew up on a family farm in Eastern Washington, which is probably like the most entrepreneurial setting you could ever imagine. There is no rule book. Um, mm -hmm. If you don't get up in the morning and go do your thing, 
you know, things die. So it's like your feelings don't matter. It's just, did you get your work done or not? Um, but then I left that to go to college and was told that I needed to get good grades. I needed a good degree. I needed to follow all the rules. And so, um, I was always a really good student. So I, I jumped in, I did that. And I thought, well, if one degree is good, why don't I get three instead, uh, or actually four. And so I got, I got an undergrad in accounting, got a master's degree in accounting. Um, and then I went to summer school, not to finish faster, but to get other degrees that I wanted to do when I was having, when I was getting my accounting degree. So I got an economics degree and a statistics degree. Okay. Um, I got, uh, I I want to continue with your story. I I really do, but I have to stop you right there. (laughs) Are you like, are you like super smart? I, I did really well in college. Yes. I, I liked, I enjoyed studying. I was the one that I read every word of the assigned textbook chapter. I highlighted everything. I would go back if I didn't understand. Like I really wanted to ensure that I understood to a deep level uh, what it is that I was studying. And I, and I was fortunate to fall into something that I really, really liked. I liked accounting. I liked economics. Um, so you're a super yeah. nerd and super Absolutely. And, and how, how much has that played into your success by like just being uh, detail oriented? Is that the word? It, and, it, and it's interesting. It's less detail oriented, but I have to understand the entire picture of what I'm dealing with. Okay. And, and when you get into a conversation with me, you'll, you'll notice that. And I think we had this going on at our conversation before, which was anytime you're asking me a question, I was backing up and trying to get a frame. Like, okay, what, yeah. what are we really talking about? What are we really trying to get our hands around here? And then we can break it down. And my mind just always worked in, frameworks. I always wanted to, to figure out what the cheat code is or what the framework or what the, what the process would be before I ever tried to take any action. And that hurts sometimes. Sometimes, I mean, it makes me move slow at, at times, but I think that's what led into really diving in and, and having to understand it. And then once you have a framework, it actually allows you to think much faster, yeah. Um, think much more reliably, and and now I don't have to have all the data anymore because I've got the framework, and if I can just plug the question into the framework, I get the right answer. Yeah, and and, and I, that's something I noticed about you right away. I remember you. We were talking about the the marketing aspect of what you do and how to market things. And one of the things that you said to me was like everybody in the financial space, or maybe not, I don't know if you use the word everyone, a lot of people in the financial space try to just present a quick solution that sounds good. And they don't bring into context the whole picture. They don't explain to you what really is going on because most of the time they don't know it as well. And yep. um, I really appreciated that about you. And the other thing that you know you mentioned there about the frameworks, uh, have you ever read the book uh, Principles by Ray Dalio? I've got it on my desk. Our team, our executive team is reading it right now. It is such a good book. I'm so happy to hear that. And he talks so yeah. much about that. For those of you guys that don't know that book, um, it's it, Ray Dalio is a, a financial, well, I mean, first enemy. He's a billion, right. billionaire, manages billions and billions of dollars. Yeah, that book, I got it right here as well. Yep. Um, but he talks about that, he, how he basically creates, he calls it you know, algorithms, Yep. C- computer algorithms around everything so that he can just plug in the data. And he's found that, you know, it takes out the, it takes out human error. And he's like, yeah, I still obviously use my gut and I still obviously use my brain, but he goes for a lot of things. I can get to 80 or 90% of the conclusion 
by just putting it in there. So I really appreciate that about you and what you do when it comes to the financial sector, because man, everybody has an advice on how people should spend their money. And it's yep. not even the person's, like, it's like, ah, oh, you have a million dollars, you've got a hundred thousand dollars, here's how you should spend the money that's definitely not mine, yep. right? Uh, I didn't work for that, I didn't sweat for that, I didn't take risk for it, yeah. Right, right, and, right. And, if, and if, if, you, if I had a chance to answer just what, like the, the one piece of advice I give anybody about money is that point right there. And, and this leads into how I approach money, how we work with clients, everything that we do, and I think it also exposes um, everything that, like the reason I'm still growing a business and, and, and doing all of this is no one will care more about your money than you. Yeah. Ever. No one ever. Mm -hmm. How did you, okay. So let's go back. Cause I don't even know this part of the story. how did you get to Goldman? So back to being a super nerd for just a second though. I gotta, yeah. I gotta, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. Yeah, let's go back to that. Sorry. I can't, I, I like talking about how big of a nerd I am. So, so I got those degrees in the, in the summer, right? Economics and statistics, because there were things in accounting that I, I, I was just told, well, that's just the way it is because of statistics. And I was like, well, okay, I guess I better go study that because I got to figure it out. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I wanted to know, well, accounting is neat, but what does it plug into? So I needed to go up a level and study economics and say, oh, okay, now I get the, I, I, I get the connection between accounting, which is very, very tactical in like the broader economy. Um, but then after graduation, did you know that all of Stanford and Harvard's and like all of their courses are online and you can just listen to them, all of them. No. So like, I don't have to buy them or just, they're just there. No, they're just there. And they, at least they were 10 years ago when I was doing all this stuff for a little longer than that. But at the time, anyway, you could, you could listen to all the economics lectures from Stanford and Harvard. So huh. instead of podcasts and audiobooks, or instead of, I don't know if Netflix was around back then, maybe it was Blockbuster or whatever, but <laughs> I, I, I listened in my car driving to and from work, Stanford and Harvard economics lectures. Cause I just, I didn't get enough and I wanted to just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. So where, that's how much of a school I am. Where, where'd you go uh, to school? Brigham Young University. I'm sorry, where? Brigham Young University. Brigham Young. BYU. Okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. in, in Boise? Nope, in, in Provo, Utah. Provo, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, Provo, Utah. I have two different, three different friends that have gone there, I feel like. That's interesting. That's, okay. All right, so you're super nerd. You super study super stuff. You study stuff that, like, the normal human being would have no interest in whatsoever, which, by the way, I'm a super nerd, not for this stuff. I mean, I, I'm fascinated by this stuff, but my super nerd is philosophy and psychology and quantum theory, but, you know, same type of super nerdness. I, I get it. So... Yeah. So how does that lead to Goldman Sachs? So how it led to Goldman Sachs was in college, I was, I was heavily considered getting a PhD because I liked studying so much. Hmm. Um, but I, I, right at the end, right after getting accepted to a couple of programs, I decided not to do that. Um, and I, I took this huge leap of faith, which was, I mean, it was, it was leading into 2006, into the end of 2007. Um, the economy was was already starting to be in upheaval. Um, and I decided to graduate without a job be, to, to figure out what it is that I wanted to do instead of just go, like I had a nice, safe, secure path into the PhD program. Um, I had done internships with some of the big accounting firms like Deloitte and Touche, and I had offers from them and it just wasn't, it wasn't the right fit. So I graduated um, much to, to the disdain of my program because they love to boast their job placement rates. And I was like one of two guys who didn't have a job for sure. Um, 
but it, it, it was meant to, to figure that out. And so the, I, to get with Goldman Sachs, it was just one of those hustle opportunities. I looked up um, who was around. I had interviewed with them. I interviewed with Bain Capital. I interviewed with BlackRock. I interviewed with, um, is, I had just decided that the, the world of investment banking is where I needed to be. And so it was just one of those hustle and grind and connect and have interviews and, and talk to people and get referred over. Um, and then right in the beginning of 2008, um, I landed the job, flew to New York and was off to the races. So Goldman Sachs, like big money, right? That's evil in most people's eyes, right? Yes. Now I did mention that I believe kind of Goldman Sachs is the evil empire, but it has nothing to do with how much money they have. Well, right. It has nothing to do with how much money that they have, but they are big money. Absolutely. So, so there's definitely a negative stigma, which was interesting for me because like the bigger, like the more I learn about money, the less I, the less I uh, dislike someone like Goldman Sachs, the more I should say, the more I understand them and the more I dislike maybe how they act, but like, I understand why they're doing what they're doing. I don't like how they go about doing it. Maybe the thing that frustrates frustrates me about it is less, it's less the money thing. It's, it's, it's how influence is wielded. Right. And, and they sit in this really unique place where they literally create markets um, to where they're, they're on both sides of transactions. Um, They're, they're regulated and and sold to us in such a way that they're fiduciaries and they have our best interests are on the consumer side. And like, if you understand the connection between the Federal Reserve, Goldman Sachs, and just the finance arm of the United States government in general, like it, it's just a revolving door where they go to an investment bank like Goldman Sachs, and then they're head of the Federal Reserve, and then they come back. Like so, it's all so interwoven and connected that there's it's impossible um, for anybody to look at it very long and not understand that there are favors and handouts and and back rubs and the back scratching and the whole thing. And so, just because of the influence that can be wielded, that's what I don't. That's, that's what I had the most issue with was seeing that from the inside. And, and I, and I want to touch on that a little bit more in a little bit more detail here, because I think this is an important topic that a lot of people don't get. And I want to know your opinion. What's the, what's the equivalent, what other banks are out there or investment banks are out there like that are equivalent to Goldman? I mean, G- Goldman's now kind of the top top because Lehman uh, was one, but they went, they went down. Yeah. Right? Um, the large, uh, I mean, I mean, BlackRock is getting to be quite large as well. Yeah. Uh, and then every major bank like Bank of America and Wells Fargo, they all have an and, investment banking division. And Chase, right? And Chase, yeah. yeah. So they've all got investment banking divisions within them. Okay. Uh, yeah. so, 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 so you talk about the relationship. Goldman, Goldman is that top dog with those relationships. Right. right? Goldman's, Goldman's the big dog. So, so with the relationship between Goldman and the financial arm and the federal reserve and all that, a lot of people hate on big money, big banks, big, whatever. And, and I get it, right? Like I understand why they hate on them, but I want to know, cause it seems to me that like a lot of people hate on the investment banks, which I get, but also, the reason that we're able to have the economy and the world that we have today, I feel like plays a big role into how the banking is designed. Like the convenience, the access to the money. I look at Facebook and I look at Google and I look at Amazon, totally different sector. Let's look at tech real quick. People can complain about Facebook all they want and they hate on Facebook. It's a, it's a fun thing to do. But let's be real. You take away Facebook or you take away Google, you take away Amazon or whatever, like the world changes, right? Like the convenience goes away. Is that how it is in the, in the investment sector? Like, is it like, yeah, it sucks that it is the way that it is, but you have to understand if you want to keep 
the way we have things now, that's how it has to be. Is that how it is? A hundred percent. So our yeah. country is what it is because we have deep financial markets, right? Yeah. And, and that's, why, that, that's why so much innovation can happen here. So much can be produced and, and just so much can happen because of we, we, have, we have a bond market, we have a stock market, we have capital and lending markets and regulations. So to, to, to hate on big banks, you're right, is, is, is a pretty narrow view right. um, to say, well, I want, I want one hand without the other. What right. I don't think is required, though, is the, the connection between like, the amount of control that we give them, um, the amount of favors that are given, bailing out, that kind of stuff. Like that, we don't have to accept that part of it. Okay, okay. So there is a part of it we can get rid of. Yeah, like I don't care how big a company gets as long as they get there on the back of a free market and free right. exchange. And, and, and that's, that's what capitalism and that's, that's what makes everything great. We want, like people beat up on Standard Oil back in the day, right? At the turn of the century with Rockefeller and, right. and, those, and those types of people. But the, what people don't realize is he dropped the price of, of heating oil by over 90%. Yeah. And it's, it's easy to hate on people that make a lot of money. It just, I mean, it is. And, and people want to do it because, you know, privilege class. And I don't want to get into a, a debate on that. But I think it is an important uh, point to make that it's oftentimes easy to hate on things when you don't understand the full picture of them. Yep, for yeah. sure. Yeah. So how, so let's talk a little bit more now about like the, the financial markets and, and how money moves and economics and things. Because like, I mean, the big questions, you know, and we'll get into questions from people that left them on Facebook and Instagram, you know, later on. But I think the big question for everyone is like, this American economy is doing really well, but you also know that there's room for a correction. And I kind of want to go down this rabbit hole of the stock market, the economy, things of that, because I know that you're going to have to bring context around it. And I just know that yep. this is the thing in there. I guess from a, from a, a standpoint of, okay, you've got these huge, massive banks that just keep making more and more and more money. And as long as the economy keeps doing well, right? They're mm -hmm. going to keep making more and more and more money. How much longer can it last? I mean, what, the Dow just closed over, what, 27,000 the other day? I mean, it's mm -hmm. stupid. So like how, how, much, how much do banks play into this? And what happens when the economy corrects? Yeah. So, and, and this is where I get to bring, I feel like this, this is what I wanted to study and wanted to get my hands around as I went into investing, personal finance, making money, because if, if you can't understand the game that you're playing, you're going to lose. Like if you don't understand yeah. the rules, you're going to lose, right? Yeah. So the thing to understand is economic crashes have very, very little to do with um, what, the, what the underlying consumer is doing. Hmm. It has, mo at least from my vantage point, um, the economic theory that I espouse is it has everything to do with money. Hmm. And we don't what, what has everything to do with money? The, the economic cycles in right. our country has everything to do with money, okay? Uh -huh. uh, and under, understanding fundamentally what money is today, not, not what it should be, yeah. but what it is and how it functions and how it plays into things like the stock market, the real estate market, uh, and the like, okay? So the, the, like, what I'm looking at when, when somebody asks me, 
what's going to happen next in the economy. I'm going back to the model of um, a correction. The challenge with with a market, I'm trying to like think of where to start into this like big, huge, scary yeah. problem opened up, right? Um, my vantage point on it is money is is the measuring stick that you and I use to make decisions, right? It's the thing that tells us, do I, do I save money? Do I spend money? Do I invest? Do I hire somebody? Do I run this ad? Money, it, it is just a, a measuring stick to say, uh, like I said, to, to help us to take action, right? Yeah, kind of like a science value. And, and, and it's something that we can, or I shouldn't say assigns value. It assigns, it gives us the ability to, to know whether or not, yeah, to make a decision. It gives us yeah, the, it's, to, it's whether or not to make a good decision. Yeah. yeah, it's how we're keeping score, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and so, but imagine if, if I'm going to go in and, and invest a bunch of capital and make a bunch of decisions and, and lay out future projects, but then somebody behind me comes in and changes the measuring stick. Yeah. That'd be pretty bad. That would totally, completely shift and change what I was in the middle of, right? And it's very unrealistic to think because a market correction, like a whole bunch of businesses make bad decisions all at the same time. Like, does it really make logical sense that 40% of the businesses <laughs> in the United States made a bad decision all at the same time? Like, no. Clearly, that's not really very probable, you know, very probable. So we have to say, well, why would it be that the market would ever drop by 40%? And we have to start looking at, at the driver of that, of, of what drives our decisions. And it's, it's literally, it is money. Mm. And so what I'm very concerned about is the, the economic boom that we're in the middle of really doesn't have a lot of underlying economic reality to it. It's, it's not, it's driven again by, we can only print and inflate a bubble for so long. And then what goes up must come down. So, so what do you mean? What do you mean by not a lot of economic reality behind it? So, would I don't think anybody would disagree that the the production of like what our economy actually does is getting better, right? Jobs are going overseas. We're losing production. We're losing innovation. We're losing talent. Like, what 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 is any different than ten years ago to now that would say? we've we're we've created just this this huge massive increase in value in the world well and and I, and you push know back. better than i yeah so i'm going to push back on you you one could say i mean let's go back 10 years 10 mm -hmm. maybe 15 years i i want to pull back that far like facebook google yeah. instagram uh amazon like these were not things not like they were yeah. just forming. You know what I mean? Like we're talking like new like automation, Tesla, right. electric cars, those types of things. Right. So, so yeah. one could say like maybe jobs aren't there, and you know, you get Trump on the show, and he'd argue that he's bringing all the jobs back. But you know, reality. Um, so, like, but like America, I feel like has done a pretty darn good job of producing maybe not jobs, but certainly value. Have they not? For sure. And, and, and you're right. I'm probably painting a broad brush to make a point. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. We've got to understand what, what most people are not asking questions. And I should have looked this data up. It would have been fun to look it up before we got on. But the questions people aren't asking is, well, how much money is, is, the, is being printed by yeah. the Federal Reserve, right? Um, what's going on with interest rates, right? 
and and how is this measuring stick of the economy being pushed around and manipulated and adjusted? What I look at, I, I look a lot less at where is the Dow right now or where is the S&P 500 right now? And I look more at what's going on policy-wise and what levers have been pulled and how long can that be sustained to say what? what's going to happen in the economy next. Why is printing money bad? Okay, good question. So let's back up and understand a little bit about what money is, right? It's, it's our- uh, Hold on real quick. Before I go down this rabbit hole, I, I want to kind of, because I want to tie this back into the previous question, but I yeah. want to really go down this rabbit hole because I feel like this is a, a big thing that will help us tie in. Recapping what you've said so far, basically what you're saying is right now, people like to look at the stock market as a general- Yep. I'm going to generalize here. They like to look at the stock market as an indicator for how the economy is doing. That's a sexy thing to do. And what you're saying is, is that there are things happening behind the scenes, including the printing of money, which we were about to talk about, uh, that are better indicators of what's actually going to happen. Because in reality, the stock market is highly manipulated by other factors that not grounded in reality, but based on what the government... once again, generalized terminology, wants you to believe or think, correct? Right. Okay, so let's talk about money now. Money so, being printed. Yeah, so I'm gonna see if I, can, if I can draw some analogies here off the top of my head. Sometimes it's difficult to do. Yeah. Um, so there's, money is, is the price of, of capital. Okay, well, interest rates are the price of capital, okay? And, and interest rates, very simply put, for those of people that are not familiar, are what? is the, it, it literally is the price of money. So if I want to borrow money from you, so interest rates are, are, are baked into this principle that money today is worth more than money tomorrow. Mm. If, if I have, and that's just simply time value of money. It has nothing to do with inflation or any of those things. Just th- think about an apple or think about anything. You would rather have it today than tomorrow. Mm. Right? That's actually super good. Okay. That's all, that's all that interest rates the reason why interest rates exist is to value things that are in my hand today versus something that might happen in the future. So what you're basically saying is, is that an interest rate is essentially a prediction of what it's going to be in the future and to correct it accordingly or no? Less a prediction, but more a, a, it helps us put a value on capital today versus capital tomorrow or five years or 10 years from now. So if I'm going to forego, like if I have $10 and you want it from me instead, by me foregoing it, when you give it back to me, I need the $10 plus be compensated for me not having it right now. Right. And so basically the federal government, when they assign an interest rate or whoever part of the government assigns the interest rate, right? They basically are saying, hey, look, if you borrow $1,000 today and you pay it back in one month, it's going to be worth X and that percent or that interest rate is what assigns that value. Yeah, is, is the value of the time, right? Compensating yeah. that. And just yeah. stop for a second right there and think how, so if the interest rate is how much I value my time, mm-hmm. right, for foregoing use of capital, how right. silly is it that some dude in Washington, D.C. is deciding what that number is? Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. It's kind of ridiculous, right? Yeah. But so this balance between, so if interest rates are really high, mm. right, then I'm going to save money because there's an incentive for me to have it later on, right? Yeah. And I'm going to invest and, and, 
and save that capital and, and get the interest. But if interest rates are really, really low, I have very little incentive. I just get rid of it, right? The whole I should just spend it or, or be doing things with it. So this is where this is where interest rate theory is designed to try to manipulate the economy. And mm. you can think of that as a bad thing or a good thing. It's it doesn't really matter. But that's right. the it just is. why the government would want to be changing interest rates is to try to tip this balance between investing and consumption. Okay? Makes sense. Okay. And and, and so so that's and, and this to me is what leads to to overinvestment, right? If 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 interest rates are really, really low and I need more capital in my life, I'm now incentivized to go find ways to take more and more risk to generate my returns. Right, because right now it's super easy to get money, right? <laughs> well, right. And, and sitting in a bank account, it's not doing enough for me. Right. right? Whereas right. if interest rates were 10%. Why would I put my money in the stock market? I just put it in a bank and let it sit there. Right, right. right? And this is why interest rates have been progressively lowered and held very, very low is to stimulate, well, man, I can't get any yield in my bank account. I guess I now have to go where? I got to go put it somewhere that's going to make me money. Yep, to the stock market, right? Or to real estate or putting it out to work in the economy, right? So, So that's... That's what I'm looking at and saying is the is the uptick in the stock market have to do with actual value creation or is it because I can't get any money anywhere else, any return anywhere else and I'm just flooding fake money or huh. all of this into the economy because the because stocks are just supply and demand. Yeah, yeah. That that's all it is, right? And if there's more money or more incentive to push in there, then then stock prices are going to go up. Everybody's got all this money interest rates are super low. So it's like, yo, I've got to get out. Like I've got to put it somewhere because I wanted to make money. It's not going to make 0.01% in my bank account. It's not doing me squat. So let me go put it into the stock market because that's at least going to make me some money. And that's where most people think of as investing. So they pick their favorite company, they dump in some money, they have higher financial advisor or whatever. But yet when everybody does this, it all goes way up. It, yeah. So that's what yeah. I say is this the reality of added value to the world or is it the rea- result? It's, it's this, of course, companies are doing great things, but right. does it match or are there other things moving, right? And, and this is, it's interesting to follow bubbles, right? If you look at like 1996 to 1999, talk, tech stocks were exciting and fun and everybody's money was there. Then it crashed in 2001 and then that money left and where did it go? It went to real estate, Right. And then it repeated the same mistake in real estate from 2002 to 2006. Real estate was where everybody wanted their money to be. And then 2008 happened, right? Now it's all back in tech, right? A lot of it's back in tech, right? But a lot of it's back in, I mean, it's interesting, the big bubble that's blowing up right now, and we won't go down this whole rabbit hole, but mm. where, where a lot of the money right now is in, um, there's a huge bubble in bonds right bonds. now. So safe money is a because think about think about the demographics of where the real money is right most of the retirement money uh most of of the savings is in the hands of baby boomers that are going into retirement yeah in risky things they want to be in safe and secure things and bonds are have the perception of being that yep and then because interest rates have been coming down that pushes up the value of bonds and that's all economic stuff but there's so so to really actually understand what's going on in the economy we've got to study economics not try to be a day trader or look at, look at stock prices. So, so let's go back to why printing money is bad. Okay, so printing money is bad because it changes the measuring stick. That's as simple as I can say it because- But is money, it always being printed? 
Uh, well, it since 1971, it has been. Right. Okay. So, like, doesn't that mean the measuring stick is constantly changed? Because that, like, 1971 yep. was still what 40 some years ago, right? Like 48 years ago. That's yeah. a long freaking time to be printing money. Yep. And that's and that's the argument of well, it, it hasn't broken yet, so we'll just keep doing it. Right? Yeah, that's a great argument, right? <laughs> yep. But but it, it's bad because it, it makes it very difficult to make decisions. Yeah. It's really where it comes down to. Now, there's other bad things because no matter how genuine a person you are, if you have a printing press, you're going to give it to your friends and family, right? Or you're going to give it to people. So it's not going to be, it can never be a fair distribution of where that money actually goes because we're human beings, no matter how good we are, it has to go to somebody. Right. So there's all kinds of that stuff going on. But even basic beyond that is it, it distorts the signals for businesses to be able to, to consistently reliably grow and expand. So I don't, if you have more to touch on, on that, I, I want to give no, you the opportunity. Now we're getting, now we're getting so deep into economics that it's probably. Confusing. Okay. Okay. So I want to, I want to move to the next point then yes, for sure, which, which is where people are really going to start getting interested in this. And this is a question I just straight up asked you at in Boise, which by the way, quick rabbit hole. We met in Boise at Ruth Chris Steakhouse, and we were there for like what three hours? I feel like and they like kick us out. Like all the other tables, they had the chairs we were, up. There were, yeah, one or two. It was us and one other table. It was like a couple, and then there's like twelve of us all gathered. Around. That was hilarious. Um, great food, by the way. Anyway, so I asked you this: there, it seems based on like just based on what you said. Now, this is before we didn't even have this conversation, but it seems yeah. like even before this, because I've I want to think that I'm like at least relatively informed at a basic level of money, right? Like I'm by no yeah. means an expert, but rel I know how to use logical thinking. To me, the, the stock market just seems like a stupid idea to place money in. And then you tell me this and you go, hey, if the government goes and says, hey, interest rates are suddenly super high, that could jack everything. And like overnight, the economy or the stock market could drop 40% and I lose 40% of my money. So like, is the, is the stock market ever a good idea to invest in? Or is it like just dumb? I, I don't see its purpose as it's been stated and held up and taught to you. No, I, you don't need the stock market for your savings or for your investment. Do you have money in the stock market? Zero dollars do I have in the stock market. All right, I want you to repeat that one more time. Zero how, how, how much money? Zero dollars. Zero dollars in the stock market. I know the next logical question that people are going to ask you is where is your money? I don't want to go into that yet, but for those of you that are listening, we will get there because I have the same question. Um, but okay, stock market, talk to me about it. Why is it dumb? So, so because the stock market is not where wealth is created. Hmm. Okay. So quick story. So in the, I, in, in my neighborhood, a uh, couple, couple houses up is a, uh, Great guy. Uh, he's kind of a traditional money manager, actually very, very successful um, in the money management space. And he, when I moved into the neighborhood, um, I don't, I don't just go around telling everybody what I do. I'm kind of reserved and shy. I work out of my home and it's just kind of, I, I can't I'm, imagine that Brad, I, you don't want to flaunt the fact that you are a <laughs> money manager. How dare you? And, and so, but he, he kept coming up and we were having conversations and he was dropping hints, basically saying I should manage your money. And when I didn't bite on any of those, um, he started dropping, you know, all the acronyms after his name, which I'm led to believe is how smart he is. And then what I didn't <laughs> on any of those, he then would start dropping names of all the people that he's money managing money for. And when I didn't bite on any of those comments, he finally cornered me and said, look, man, we got to talk like, 
I really should be managing your money. It sounds like you're doing well. You're a business owner. Like you're who my clients are. And so I said, okay, look, if you can answer this one question for me, then I will give you all of my money to manage. Here's the question. Don't tell me what your clients are doing with their money now. If you can tell me what your clients did to create the money in the first place and then show me how to do that, I will give you all of my money. <laughs> how do you think, how do you think his response went? Uh, I'm guessing he didn't know. Yeah. Like he looked at his shoes and walked away. He had no response for it. So the, it's, it's not logical. What we're told is there's rich people and they have their money in the stock market. Therefore, I should have my money in the stock market. It's a huge gap in logic. We need to ask, what did the rich people do to create their money in the first place before they wanted to then store it and grow it in the stock market? I'm not about managing money. I'm not about, uh, about mirroring what other people are doing. I am trying to help people literally create the wealth in the first place. Those are the only vehicles that I care about. So I, I think my next question is a perfect segue into why the economy or like how the stock market works or why it's a bad idea. And, and the only reason I say that is because I've asked you this question specifically and it's such a good question. I want to hear it again. Okay. So what about Warren Buffett? And what uh -huh. about all the rich people that manage things in the stock market, the Charlie Mungers and the, you know, all the people that have, have yep. billions of dollars literally in the stock market and control huge stakes. You're saying that, Hey, you're smarter than them. I'm saying that we're not asking the right questions. Great. So what questions should we be asking? I would ask, I would ask, and, and so let's look at Warren Buffett. Where does Warren Buffett's net worth come from? Are you asking me? I, asking actually, I actually don't know. I mean, you said it was in the stock market. I would, I would imagine, I would, I would imagine that uh, his wealth comes from his businesses that he owns. But okay. I also know that he manages a crap ton in the stock market, and that's where he puts his money after the fact. Well, that's what my assumption was before I talked to you. Aha. See, that's what we're talking about. So Warren Buffett's wealth is in the business that he owns. Yeah. Right? And in the valuation of that business. Okay. Warren Buffett is not investing his own money into the stock market. Okay. He created his wealth by creating a company that then did things. Okay, and it doesn't matter what those things are. Every wealthy person didn't start with a W-2 job saving 7% of their income into their 401k and investing it in other people's companies, mm. okay? And then when Warren Buffett does invest, so even if we could look at Warren Buffett's personal portfolio and try to match it, we would not get the same outcomes. Or even if we looked at, at Berkshire Hathaway and said, they invest into public companies, so I'm gonna mirror every move that. And there is actually a a doc. It's a documented fact that when when Berkshire Hathaway makes an investment in a company, the company valuation goes up, like statistically significant. And it's called the Berkshire Hathaway effect. Um, but so even if I was gonna do that, your the the news flashes is you're not gonna get the same result that Berkshire Hathaway got. Why? So it's because. The, it, it's not what Warren Buffett did, it's how he did it. So you're saying, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that Warren Buffett, for the most part, I mean, one could argue, you know, at the beginning, oh, when he was 12 and bought his first stock, yes, obviously he was using his money. But you're saying that a large majority of the money that he has invested in the stock market is not his money. It is not his money, right? He just, he just goes in and is like, 
hey, all you suckers that want to think that it's smart to put it, you know, your money in the stock market, you should all give me all your money. And he raises a hundred million dollar fund or whatever it is, and then takes that. He invested into it because he's in theory smarter than you are. And yep. then he gives you a, a percentage of the return, but he doesn't tell you that he's also making bank because he's not giving you the full return. It, 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 and, and it's not bad of him to not. Right, right. And I understand that, but I'm just saying. But, but exactly. He's not following the same rules that you're following. When you buy, when you buy shares of Coca-Cola, you can't go into the shareholder meeting and then like make decisions for the company, right? But when- he can. When Warren Buffett does, they buy controlling interest in companies, right? Mm. And they go raise money from they go raise money from the public, they raise money in the bond markets, they raise money externally, and then they go make these moves. So again, it's not and then and then they keep all of the the profit that they amass on it. So they're investing in a fundamentally different way than you and I are. Because So okay. you're so you're saying because the way you explained it here and, and how we were talking in Boise and here, and I want to make sure the listeners are understanding this because this is something that fascinated me too. You're saying that for the average person, more or less, excuse the terminology if it's not correct, but like we're suckers if you're investing in the stock market right now, because basically what you're doing, if you are the average person, let's say I have $100,000 that I want to invest into something. And uh -huh. I go, I'm going to go invest $100,000 in the stock market. I have no control over what that company does. I have no voting rights. I have very little information. I really don't control what happens in that stock market, market or whatever. There's way better investments that I could be making with my money. But because it's the sexy thing that we think rich people do, I'm going to put my money in, this, in that stock market. Warren Buffett, on the other hand, looks at the stock market and goes, huh, I have $100,000 that I can invest into the stock market. But you know what I could also do? I could go find 1,000 other people that have $100,000 know, to invest in the stock market, take their $10 million collectively or $100 million collectively or whatever. And all of a sudden now, since they're giving me all their money and I've got this $100 million, I can buy voting rights essentially to these or, or managing percentage to these companies now, go in, do exactly what I want with it, make 30 or 40% returns or whatever that number is, a higher percentage of returns and say, hey, I'm going to give you your 8%, your 10%, which you're happy with, nothing wrong with that. And I'm going to keep the 20 and the 30% or the you know the remaining balance or whatever that is for myself for, as a managing fee and for the one that's actually taking the risk and doing all the work. So because of that, I have all the power, very little risk. And if it blows up and goes negative, whatever. It's not my money that I lost. It's everybody else's money that I lost. I just control it. So let, let's break. Yes. Let, dude, that very eloquent. Clap. Where's your little clap button? Oh, yeah. Um, my little clap button. Yeah. So, I need one of those. So here, let, let's break down a couple concepts there, okay? First, but, 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 um, that, that, is, that is essentially correct, correct? That's the way I, that's the way I view the world, 100%. Yeah. All right. yep. So let's, let's break down a couple concepts because uh, there was a lot in there. Let's first a break lot. down the concept. You keep using the word investing. Uh -huh. And, and the, the line, I don't know if this dates me, but um, I grew up watching the movie The Princess Bride. And when he keeps oh, saying- I love that. When he keeps saying, I, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Like investing is a word we all use, but we don't really understand what it means. Yeah. Okay? When we're, what everyone else says investing is, is I buy something here, down here, and I sell it later for up here, right? And the thing I'm buying will go up in value. That's why we're trying to find the next Apple or the next Microsoft or the next right. Amazon, right? So that it will go up in value. And they, and that mindset is not even um, only 
uh, focused on stocks. People buy real estate the same way. They want right. to find the next emerging place that's going to appreciate and go up. Right. Well, if once I buy something, how much control do I have over what it's worth in the future? Well, mm -hmm. if it's a stock mark, if it's a stock, then nothing. Nothing. I don't even have control over what a piece of real estate is worth. Right. Because valuation is just someone else's opinion of what another person at some point is going to come along and pay for it. Pay, you right. don't know what it's worth until somebody actually gives you cash in yeah. exchange for it. Right? Yeah. So if, if the only way you make money in the thing that you quote unquote call an investment is that it goes up in value, you're not actually investing. You are speculating. 100%. Hmm. Because it's you're, you're saying you're saying that investing in the terminology that we use it in the stock market. So if you put money into the stock market, you're not you're not investing. You are speculating. You are speculating. Hmm. Right? You're making educated guesses about what might happen in the future with no influence or control over that outcome. So so investing strictly put means that you have some control over. Yep. So investing is comprised of four components. In every investment, there are four ways to make money. Okay, okay. this is where you pull out your pen and start writing things down because the first 30 minutes just got us warmed up. Now we're like into the movie, <laughs> right? Four ways that we make money. One of them is appreciation and I love appreciation. It's wonderful, but it's icing on the cake. Yeah. Okay, yeah. behind appreciation, there are three other ways. And this is what I would tell you that the wealthy, this is what the wealthy know they carve out the three that are the most valuable that they want to keep and they hand you the icing on the cake, the mm. appreciation, okay? So if you really want to know why Warren Buffett is different is he understands these other three components, uh. okay? The other ways I can make money is I can create cash flow, okay? Uh. So an investment not only could go up or down in value, but whatever is happening on its value, it every month puts, every month or day or week or year puts money into my pocket. So just just to once again analogy or example just for those yep. people that are following along cuz audio this would be like hey I buy a house and I rent it out and I rent it for $1000 a month every month my cost is $500 a month every month and it pays me $500 a month now I have a cash flow of $1000 with a profit of 500 and that $500 doesn't impact the valuation of the house right and whether the house goes up or down. If I buy it for $100,000 and it drops to a $60,000 value, I still make my 500 bucks. If it goes up to $200,000 value, I still make my 500 bucks. Those two returns are, are non-correlated. They're not, not directly related to each other, right? Yeah. Yep. A dividend paying stock could be the same thing. If I buy a share of Apple and it pays a dividend every quarter, I could receive the dividend no matter what the share price, is. no matter what's going on with the share price. Perfect. Okay. If, if it's a per share dividend, right? Right, right. If it's 25 cents per share, then however many shares I have multiplied by 25, I get that amount of money independent of whatever the market value of the share is. Yep. Right? So yep. now I'm making money two different ways, okay? The third way I can make money is I cannot pay taxes, right? Because if, if, if an investment, if two different investments put a dollar in my pocket and I have to pay tax on one of them and not on the other one, they're not the same return, mm. right? Okay. So would and, you consider that making money or just keeping money? Well, it's all tied together. Okay, okay, okay. Right? I would tie it. it all together, right? Because okay. on the investing side, it's all tied together. So, okay. so how I am taxed matters, right? 
And then the last way that I can make money is I can make money strictly on what, I, what we call leverage, okay? And this can be financial leverage, but it can also be human leverage. It can be technology leverage. It can be time leverage. Okay? So this would be like the Berkshire Hathaway effect. This would be a Berkshire Hathaway effect or, yeah, so this would be Warren Buffett borrowing from the bond market at 3% and making an investment at 6%. Mm. His return is technically infinite because he has no money into it. And he keeps 3% of the 10 million in bonds he raised and he gives 3% back to the other people. He literally creates it utilizing the leverage. And in a piece right. of real estate, it's pretty amazing. Um, this is why I love real estate so much. But I can buy a $100,000 house, right? If I pay cash for it, I want to illustrate this because most people can't comprehend because they've Buffett. never been exposed to leverage. Yeah, yep, yep. Okay. This is never good. been exposed to it. This is the impact of financial leverage. And this is why this is really the heart of how to get wealthy investing lies inside of leverage. Okay. Pure and simple. That's the, it is the most, excuse me, it is the most powerful pillar to making money. Okay. I want, I want you to repeat that guys. There's four pillars of wealth or there's four, four th ways to make money. Yep. One is appreciation. appreciation. Two is uh, cash, flow. cash flow. Three is not paying taxes and four is leverage. And the most important and number one key to making money or generating and creating wealth is Leverage. leverage. So let me tighten the screws on that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. The most important pillar is cash flow. Most important the, is cash flow. The most powerful is leverage. Most powerful. Okay? Cash flow is our permission slip. Okay. It's the one that gives us the most security, but then leverage is the most powerful. Got but it. leverage by itself can't make us a return. Leverage just impacts the other ones. Mm. It amplifies them. And unfortunately, it can amplify them the wrong direction. Just ask most people that were investing in real estate in 2008, right? So it can, it can impact it the wrong direction. Yeah. All it does is amplify. That's why we need cash flow to make sure it amplifies it in a positive direction. Got okay? it. But here's how leverage works. I can buy a $100,000 piece of real estate. And let's say it just goes up with inflation. So nothing really happens. Just it, because of inflation, our price of it goes up from 100000 to 103000 right? Yeah. If I paid $100,000 cash for the property, I just made $3,000 or a 3% return. Yeah. 3,000 divided by 100,000, right? That's appreciation. That's, that's appreciation, right? And it's a 3% return. But if I want to buy a $100,000 property, do I need $100,000 in my bank account? No. No. I can go make a down payment and then go borrow the other money from a bank, right? Put 20,000 down. So I put $20,000 down on a $100,000 property. And when it goes to 103,000, how much of the $3,000 increase do I get to keep? All of it. All of it. So now my return is 3,000 on a $20,000 investment. Mm. What's, that, what's that rate of return? Mm, it'd be what times five, 15%. Divided by 12, that's a three, yeah. Three divided by 20 is a 15% return. Yeah, 15%. So leverage just leveraged my return from 3% to 15%. And the leverage for those, you know, for once again, on a very simplistic level, the leverage is using someone else's, in this case, the bank's money. Money. Yep. So financial leverage is, is OPM, other people's money, somebody else's capital. Yep. But, but could one argue, and, and this is where, you know, you know because I, I know uh, growing up in a very non-understanding of money environment, couldn't uh -huh. argue to say, well, yeah, great. You took 80,000, but you, you still borrowed $80,000 and you've got the interest on an $80,000 loan. 
right? So you're paying interest. So yeah, you put $20,000 down, you made 15% on that 20,000. But guess what? You're going to pay over $3,000 in interest while paying it back. So you didn't really make 3,000. Okay. So this is where, again, starting to understand what money is Mm. becomes important. Money interest rates are just the price of money. So if I can, if I can earn 15%, what do I pay on a mortgage? 5%? How am I doing? But, but you're not going to earn 15 and pay five, but, but you're paying 5% on 80 grand Uh, on a, on a, on a bigger number. Right. Right. So this is why we've got to understand all four pillars and bring in the cash flow perspective. Okay. The way I look at real estate is if I can borrow the money, but I don't have to pay the interest then I'm in a pretty good spot. This is why cash flow is the most important pillar. Yeah, if you don't have to pay the interest, it'd be freaking who pays the interest on my, Who pays my interest on the mortgage? In I this don't. particular case, uh, on an investment. Rental, right, you're talking about a rental property. The yep, person paying the interest you're saying is the tenant. The tenant, yep. So I can buy a property that after somebody services my mortgage for me, they still put cash flow in my pocket and I get the leverage of the appreciation pillar. And because of the way real estate is taxed, I don't have to pay tax on any of it. Now I've, I'm stacking my returns. You don't, you don't pay tax on the, the tenant money. So now, now we're starting to chase rabbits. Okay. 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 We okay. Could, we, Cause I think okay. the conversation we were trying to answer was this, how does Warren Buffett make money in the, in the stock? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. But let's finish that. Cause we'll go there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so with, so what I'm saying is, is we've got to understand to invest, we have to make money at least two ways at a bare minimum. At a bare and the minimum. more ways we can make money, the better off we are. Because what if appreciation doesn't work out? Well, that's cool because I still have cash flow, tax benefits, and leverage. Well, what if my cash flow doesn't work out exactly as I want it? Well, I still have the other three pillars. Okay. So if we want to really understand investing, we have to start with the term investing itself and get out of the world of speculation and get into the world of actually investing. And I just want to clarify just one quick point, just a simple yes or no answer. You're, you're saying that real estate because of tax benefit, like has specific tax benefits for owning real estate. That is yes. why real estate is a good investment in this case for that purpose. That, that adds to the case. That adds to the case. Is a good investment. Got it. Okay. Okay. Specifically yep. for that. But now. even stocks are taxed in a, in a, in a very particular way that can make them beneficial as well. Okay. But we want to look and understand and make our decisions in such a way that aligns with that. So I can't change the tax code. I can only align myself with it or not. Right. So Warren Buffett. He invests. He makes money four different ways. And his big lever that he pulled with Berkshire Hathaway was leverage. Okay. Not appreciation. You can't look at his track record and say it it had nothing to do with appreciation. It had everything to do with the fact that he was running a business, that he had cash flow, leverage, and tax benefits. That's the difference. So I would want everyone to upgrade their thinking and and understand that when they're buying a stock, they're speculating and they need to start studying and learning the principles of true investing. Because, Because you have, number one, you have no control of any of those four pillars when you buy a stock right? Yeah. You only get one. You get, which is, which is appreciation Appreciation. or tax benefits. Okay. Appreciation. appreciation. So you get appreciation, which once again, is the riskiest essentially of them all because you don't control it. So I want to unpack more of this conversation about Warren Buffett. So first off you, Warren Buffett is investing in the stock market, but you're not, you're speculating in it. Yeah. Number one. Point number two. Because, because he's investing as much as he is. 
because no, because he's using the four pillars. Okay. Because he's using he's he's making money more than just on the appreciation of the thing that he's buying. Okay, got right? it. And he's utilizing leverage. Second piece to this conversation is when you buy common stock, you are in the riskiest position. You are last in line to get paid. <laughs> All the way down here at the end. Because think about a company. If a company brings in a dollar, who gets the first? Like if a company brings in ten thousand dollars, who gets the very first dollar that comes in? The investor. Oh no, the employees. The employees. Yeah, their employees, right? If they don't pay their employees, they're in trouble, right? Who after that? Their vendors, right? They bought supplies from their their landlord if they're renting their building, whatever that might be, right? Their sure, vendors. Sure. I can put my vendors off a little bit. I can I can have payables thirty days, forty five days, ninety days, right? My employees got to get paid every two weeks. They every, get the first yeah, money. sometimes every week, right? Yep. Then I got vendors after that. Then who gets paid? I don't know where you're coming from with the whole yep. thing well, of this, I'll but keep, I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm guessing Uncle Sam gets paid. Next. I was going to, I was going to say it'd have to be the yeah. government, right? I got, I got to pay my taxes, right? right? Mm -hmm. Then again, in these larger corporations, the next person that gets paid is, are the lenders. Yeah. Yeah. The big share. If I borrowed money from a bank, if I have a mortgage, I have to pay them, right? But I'm going to pay my employees first. I'm going to pay my vendor second. I'm going to pay Uncle Sam. And then if I still have money, I'm going to pay my lenders. Yep. Then who gets paid? Well, I'm gonna, then there's a whole class of preferred shareholders that get paid, that have guaranteed payments that get made as long as there's money left after all those people in front of them. Now, if there's any money left over at that point, now who gets paid? The stockholder. The common shareholder. Yeah. All the way at the end of the line. They've put you at the end of the line promising you appreciation, which they cannot guarantee, they cannot make any, any delivery on. And they're, they're ensuring all of their cash flow and all of the real money that the company is making is going to someone else first. Even a company that pays a dividend, it's only with money left over. You're last in line for all and, of that. And, to, and like, while they have taken it to extremes of screwing people over at times, I think it's important to make the point that also the reason that you're last in line is because you've also contributed the least. You know what I mean? For sure. Like, like there's, you don't have any education that went involved. You have very little risk and you're contributing most of the time, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a percentage of what's actually running their company. So 100%. it's not an unfair, right. It's not an unfair system. People take advantage of it and screw people over, but in theory it works well. No, and it's not even screwing people over. You're right. You added the least, you're last in line. Right. But we're, we're, we're believing that the stock market is this secure investment that right. I can understand and, and it's, it's what everybody should be doing. Well, most people have no business in investing in the stock market because they don't really know what's going on and then they're last in line. And they're taking their retirement money, they're taking, they're, they've, worked, they've worked blood, sweat and tears and saved and they're relying on this money and they're giving it to the stock market and then standing last in line hoping that there's still something left at the end of the day. Hmm. Okay. So going back to the Warren Buffett thing, have we finished that? Have you finished your thoughts there on that? I, I think those are the, the, the main, I mean, we covered, we've okay. been covered investing versus speculating core for the four pillars. Okay. And then, and then the last thing I'd wrap it up with is people say, well, how do I, how do I make a decision with investing? Um, and it's, so we, we talk about the two lenses that I look at investing through four pillars is one of them. The other one is the one I call core four. Okay. And this, we learned from Warren Buffett as well. Warren Buffett's number one rule of investing. Well, before I say that, 
if you go to a traditional financial advisor who is going to show you how to be a really good speculator um, and stand last in line in the marketplace, he's going to tell you if you want more return, you have to be willing to take more risk. Risk, right? Okay. So let's compare that advice since we're using Warren Buffett as an example. Warren Buffett's first rule of money, and this is publicized everywhere. I'm not making any of this up. He says his first rule of money is don't lose money. Yeah, that's 100%. That's everywhere. And his second rule of investing is never forget rule number one. (laughs) Yet we are told to make more money to do what again? Take more risk. Do those seem like opposite ideas? Yeah. All right. So now we're starting to shed more light on this idea that Warren Buffett is something different than we are. And I want to, and I want to just draw this distinction once again, we're talking specifically guys in the context of investing, right? Like when you're doing, when you're talking about business growth and business development and things of that nature, obviously you got to take risk, right? I mean, this is true. Um, but in specifically the context of investing, I want to come back to that because I disagree. Mm, okay. I want to come back to it, but let's finish this conversation. So if yeah. Warren Buffett says his first rule of money is not to lose money and then he never forgets the rule number one, well, what does he do? Okay. Yeah. So we, we teach this as what we call the core four, that this is the other lens that is we're analyzing whether we should or shouldn't do something. It has nothing to do with the potential return. It has to do with the underlying what's going on inside the investment. So um, my first off, whatever I do has to be worth my attention, okay? So I have to make a high return. I want a higher return just like everybody else does, okay? So I wanna increase my return but rather than taking more risk, I follow Warren Buffett's advice and I, I need to look and understand how much control I have. So I want to increase my returns through increasing my control. I want to decrease the amount of risk I have to take. And then taxes, since it's the number one destroyer of wealth, I want to be minimizing my tax. So as I look at an investment, I want to understand what's my return, how much control do I have, how much risk do I have to take, and what do I have to pay in taxes? That formula will help us avoid the problem of what we call becoming an Excel millionaire. That there are so many investments you look out there that with this beautiful straight line prediction from the lower left-hand corner to the upper right-hand corner, that after so much time, I'm going to be a millionaire, right? But if I can't describe the amount of control I have and the amount of risk I have to take and what I have to pay in taxes, that return is fantasy land. Hmm. Okay? Yeah. And core four and four pillars, right? The how I decrease my control, or sorry, increase my control and decrease my risk is through ensuring that I'm making money more than one way. Hmm. The more pillars I have, the more control I have. The more pillars I have, the less risk I'm taking. Yeah, that's a great point. Huh, interesting. Man, ah, financial education, so important. Okay, so that is how we can tell what we should be doing. Not how many initials our financial advisor has after his name, not what college he went to, not whose money he's managing, but can we, when, and this is, this comes back to the very first thing we said at the beginning, Josh was no one cares about your money more than you do. Yep. 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 So you have to get yourself educated enough to be able to, I don't have to know how to do any of that. Right. When I get, I do a lot of real estate, but if I get in a, in a room of like people who are day to day doing real estate, my ignorance is exposed. I don't, I don't know the specifics of real estate, but I know how to put it through the core four and four pillars to get an outcome. Yep. So, so that breaks down the Warren Buffett myth to me of, oh, I should just do what Warren Buffett's doing or what Ray Dalio does or what any of those people do. They already have their money. How right. they created it was core four, four pillars. 
Yeah. And it's just so interesting to me that, you know, people don't realize that there's so many different vehicles to make money. Um, and that like, you know, there's, you look at someone like Warren Buffett and you're like, man, I'm going to follow Warren Buffett's advice. Okay. Well, Warren Buffett was also lived pretty poor for a while. You know what I mean? Like, like his stuff was like, and then like, you know, straight line up towards the end. And so the compound interest effect, which I'm not going to go into, but that, you know, that, that effect of like understanding, yeah, he put himself in the position, but not everybody can do that. Everybody could go take that route or anyone could go take that route. I should say. willing to. If you're willing to, but most people are not willing to, and therefore they will never have the opportunities that they have. So yep. now the question now becomes, and I promised everybody we would get to this. Okay, Brad, since you're so Mr. Smart Guy over there, got Warren Buffett all figured out. Where do I put my money? And where, like, okay, real estate sounds like a great option. Real estate's the answer to everything, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So now we, where now do we I go? Right. Where, where do I go with my money though, to create true wealth? Because I mean, I will say this and I would, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I'm going to say it's probably not too far of a limb to say most people would probably be under this assumption as well. Real estate sounds all fine and dandy. Great. However, yep. you also hear the horror stories of 2008 when everybody owns real estate, the yep. market goes under and you've got even Grant Cardone talking about the most stressful times of his life, 2008, 2009, when banks called him up and they're like, yo, you owe us $50 million and you owe us it now, right? And he's like, I don't have it, right? Um, so, so where do you put your money? Where do you recommend putting your money? Where are we looking? Okay, okay so a couple things I want to hit on uh, before I answer that. Um, first off, um, and this isn't a legal disclaimer, this is back to nobody cares about your money more than you do. And if you're listening to a radio or a podcast like this, and then you go take action on it, like understand this prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to make a prescription here, but I don't know you and I don't know where you're, what you have and what you have in place and what your next step should be. Okay. I'm going to give you the principles to follow and now some, some application behind it but there's got to be some prescription involved first of what should your first step be. Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so basically what you're saying is I shouldn't just like listen to you on the podcast and go, well, Brad said, so. So I'm, I'm going to go do that. And then we've got to continue. I'm going to continue to harp on this. The vehicle is irrelevant. It's the how that matters. How are we going? So real estate's amazing, but how do we do real estate? Yeah. Right? Okay. That's what I want to talk about. So for me, there's only three places that I put my money. Because again, Josh, I'm not interested in managing the money for multimillionaires. They already made their money. I'm in the game of helping people go from wherever they're at to becoming financially free. After financial freedom, the, the rules of the game change. If you've ever played Robert Kiyosaki's game Cash Flow, you understand that when you get out of the rat race, the, he literally changes the rules of the board game. And that's to represent the reality that when you are financially free, the rules of the game are completely different. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds so messed up, but it's not. Like it, when you understand how it is, and I've you know, yes. done more studying you know, this, it, it's not unfair. It's literally how it works. It, it's you are, you are literally playing a different game. You're literally a different game, yeah. Or yeah. in a different world. So mm -hmm. what I'm sharing with you are the rules of, that you should follow until you are financially free, okay? 
I particularly like these rules. So even though I'm financially free, which I'm not going to say that to brag, but I'm going to say that again. I am personally financially free. That's well, I should hope so. That's in, <laughs> why should you hope so, Josh? Because of everything that you know now. So stop though and ask yourself a question. The person giving you money advice, you better ask them, how are you doing financially? Well, and this is, and let's talk about this real quick. Let's have a, a take a pause here about the, the, the deep conversation of, of what we've been talking about because it's a men amazing. But this is the biggest problem that I had, even when I was like 14, 15, 16 years old. And then when I first got out, I remember one of my first jobs that I got, I uh, you know, was told you should go to the bank and you should talk to them about managing your money, yada, 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 whatever. I mean, I was making like 12, $14 an hour, right? Yeah. And I sat down with this advisor person and I went and I talked to them and they told me all this stuff and they're like, this is what's going to happen. You're going to do this and you're going to do this and all this. And I'm just like sitting there thinking, I'm like, you're sitting in a cubicle you don't like, I can just tell by the excitement of what you're doing right now. You're not thrilled with what you're talking about, right? Like this is not clearly what you're passionate about. You don't, you're not financially free. You're making $35,000 or whatever it is. Is this financial advisor person doesn't make you a bad person, but why on earth would I listen to you? And what blows my mind is, is that we think, and, and I think maybe this perspective of a business owner and like how much systems play into it has, has shifted my mindset. So I understand is even better, but like, to think that just because somebody works at Wells Fargo makes them a good financial advisor, you do understand that they could quit tomorrow and they'd have to fill that position, you know? And it just, yes. it, it boggles my mind because they're just following a script, more or less. And, and, and it's, it, what's even crazier about it is the training that your financial advisors from Wells Fargo get is not financial or investment training. It's sales training to follow the script that you're talking about. They are salesmen. Not that that makes them bad or good, everything right. sold in this world, but understand they have no knowledge of what vehicle they're actually putting you into. They are trained to be salesmen. It's just mind boggling to me. And people need to, I mean, it's not just true in the financial oh. market, it's true in so many markets. But oh, in everything. So like, ugh. we have a term for this we call goldfish advisors, okay? Most of the financial advice out there is, is, is doled out by goldfish advisors. Okay. And how do you know a goldfish advisor? You're already describing them, right? They are stuck in the same game you're stuck in. Okay. They, they're not financially free themselves. And, and by the way, the game that I'm trying to help people solve is not, I don't, I'm not helping people have more money at age 65. Retirement is an idea that I do not buy into. Okay. So I'm not helping you retire. I'm helping you to be financially free. Yeah. And I'm helping following the rules that I've been sharing with you today. Anybody can be financially free in 10 years or less. That's just the facts of the way the game is. I, I, I want to I, I make sure that I, that I understand that. Anyone. So if I have, uh, you know, if I'm 57 years old and I have no retirement, huh? right? And I'm like, hey, I'm living paycheck to paycheck right now, more or less, right? If I follow what you're saying, and obviously I'm going to have to make changes to my life and my cash flow and things of that nature, like I understand that, but it is, realistically possible that if I'm 57 years old by 67 or 69 years old, I can be financially free. We've done it many, many times. All right. Yes. So 10 years. So again, I'm, I'm, so I'm playing a different game. My rules don't apply in the game of, I want more in a retirement account when I'm 65, you're playing a different game. Yeah. So I want financial freedom in the next 10 years. That's the game we're playing. Okay. So let's go back to you investing your yes. money 
You put it in three places. Three places. Okay. So the only three places I'm willing to put it are things that have, that check off all the core four and all the four pillars. Okay. I have to have high control, low risk, and I have to make money through appreciation, cash flow, tax benefits, and leverage, right? There are only three assets that do that. Okay. One of them is my own business. So whatever I do actively to generate income has all, all ha, checked both of those checklists. Agreed? Yeah. And that's, and that's active cash though. Like you're actively working for it more or less. I, I mean yes. like, yes, I'm, I'm actively involved, but I want to expose. Well, after I get there, I'll come back and expose something here in a second. So my own business. Yep. That's one investment, real estate. Mm, that's two and whole life insurance, whole life insurance, whole life plain, boring, stupid, whole life insurance. Those are the only three vehicles on the planet that have all four fillers. Okay. So I want to just, I want you to give me a, a, a basic breakdown of whole life insurance, because I know we still have plenty of time left, but there's still other topics that I want to get to. Um, give me a basic understanding because when most people think of whole life insurance, they think, Oh, I pay someone money every month until the day that I die. And if I die anytime between now and then I get a check for a half million bucks. Right. So that's not the insurance that I recommend of where you store your capital. Okay. Right. So, Cause in my head or well, pre talking to you in most people's heads, you go and you go, what? That's not storing money. That's just paying someone for a policy that I get when I die. Right. So, so what is whole life insurance? So the, the quickest, cause I want to get into other topics and not stray off into this too much. Okay. Um, okay. Where, what to under, the thing you got to understand is overview. Whole, yeah. Whole life insurance is the original investment vehicle that capitalism in the United States was created on. It is where savings was stored. It was created and designed for what you think your 401k does now. Okay. Hmm. And up until the sixties and seventies, that was the primary vehicle to store and preserve and protect and grow capital. So it's been around for a hundred years. No, go ahead. And that's the thing that you gotta realize, 401ks are only, I mean, they were were invented in the 1970s, became popular in the 1980s, they're not that old. Like are they they garbage? Completely. Completely garbage. Well, I'm gonna qualify that, no, no. You will have, I'm supremely confident that virtually everybody will have more money in their 401k than they contributed. So are they good vehicles? Well, sure, they make you money, but they're not, if you want to be financially free in 10 years or less, they are not the vehicles for that. Okay. Okay. They will prevent that outcome. They'll prevent that outcome. Okay. So, so whole life insurance is the way that we do it is a very specifically designed policy. We call it investment grade life insurance. It's not the retail stuff. You're going to buy from your brother-in-law who got his life insurance license, self on the side. It's not that. Okay. Mm. It's also cash value life insurance. Okay. It's focused on capital accumulation of liquidity, not the death benefit. Okay. This is the same vehicle. Like I go back to the super nerd thing, right? Like I read the financial statements of, of the large banks. They all have this vehicle. I read the, I'm the only thing that gets me excited about the upcoming election is all of the politicians are going to disclose their tax returns. And I do two things. I look at their tax returns because get I'm a super nerd. I look at their effective tax rate, which for most of them is below 20%, which is fascinating. I want yeah. mine to be lower than that. Um, and they all have uh, cash value life insurance. Okay, mm-hmm. Warren Buffett and and the other billionaires of the world they all have all the all the old money. And the reason why we've never been exposed to this is very few of us have spent very much time hanging around 
old old money. Yeah, I, I have to ask, like, super yes or no answer. Do you think Donald Trump's going to expose his tax returns? No. Okay. Cool. All right. No. Moving on. Yep. Okay. So that's why we use it. Okay. Because not because I like it, not because I sell it, not for any of those reasons. It's because it passes the core four four pillars. It okay. has appreciation, tax benefits, cash flow. And, 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 and I would just say, guys, for we don't have to, we explored that topic of why that makes crazy. a lot of sense way deeper in Boise. It's not the time for it on this podcast because there's too much to cover. But understand that that singular concept of whole life insurance. And after, of course, after Boise, you got my head rolling. So what did I do? I went and start, you know, studied it, of course. But like that concept of that and, and the one point well, let me finish that thought. The, that concept of whole life insurance absolutely fundamentally blew my mind. And I think everybody needs to study it. So talk to Brad afterwards or, or study that more. Really wow. quick though, like three minute, two minute summary. Explain to me how the insurance thing works. I know it's going to be hard to do in two or three minutes, but like I want specifically you to talk about storing liquid cash. Yeah. Because so most people are under this assumption I have found, and I was too until I talked to you, that insurance companies take their money, you know, that you're paying them and they put it into investments like the stock market. And my thought process is if stock market crash, investment, I mean, uh, insurance companies also then fail. And you're saying that's not correct. It's not correct. So the, the policies that we um, utilize are ones, again, that that hold cash inside of them. So what, what's happening is you're actually, you're putting money into the vehicle. The money remains liquid. Yes, it comes with a death benefit. And all we want for that is we want the wrapper and the tax benefits of life insurance. So we bring the death benefit to get the wrapper, okay, of the tax benefits. And then inside of that vehicle, the life insurance company gives you a guarantee that, the, that protects the principal so it never goes down. On top of that, they give you a guaranteed return and then they give you a dividend based on the performance of the insurance company. Because the insurance company for all the other policies that are sold, all the retail stuff that's sold, they sit on immense amounts of cash. And if you wanna talk about the depth of the economy, the reason why our economy um, is so robust, it actually has to do with life insurance companies. They are the ones, they, a bunch of my study of putting together these investment principles actually, it, it was a lot in, in things like Warren Buffett, but it was also in life insurance because I was exposed to the idea a number of years ago that life insurance companies, there are a, a special subset of life insurance companies that in over 150 years have never lost a dollar of principal. They've never missed a guaranteed payment and they've never not paid a dividend in 150 straight years. That led me to, to start questioning, well, how do they invest? Yeah, no they, spend, they spend bank runs in the, in the 1800s. They spanned the Great Depression, two world wars, stagflation, the, the, the dot-com bubble and the real estate bubble. Like how in the world? Well, guess what principles they follow when they invest? <laughs> the four and the four. The common stock and they, and they follow the core four and four pillars. So we put our capital there and we get all of those benefits and then we still get the leverage because we can use our capital anytime that we want. Hmm. That's the idea behind it. Okay. So the three places you're putting your money are your own business. Yep. Um, and real estate, investment real estate specifically. What, real quick, what's your favorite type of uh, investment real estate? Commercial, residential, apartment? Quick overview. Super boring, three bedroom, two bath houses in rural St. Louis. So, or, or an equivalent. That's it. Or an equivalent. Okay. So the Grant Cardone model or method or ideology you're thinking of, 
let's buy multifamily units. Let's get a hundred, you know, a hundred people under wraps in one go or 60 people under wraps in one go because of the fact that, Hey, you buy, if you're buying four, you might as well buy 60, right? What's why not that? So again, go back to core four, four pillars. If you invest with Grant Cardone and his team, Grant's a smart dude. He has a business. Well, well I'm not. I'm not talking with, investing with him. I'm talking about investing like him, like in in apartment complexes okay. specifically. Okay. So again, it comes back to the question of what is Grant Cardone doing now, and what did he do to create his wealth in the first place? He didn't walk out into the market and buy a 30 unit apartment complex. But he's he recommends that though, right at the beginning. Except if you follow his value ladder down, it is impossible, Josh, for you to go out and go buy a 30-unit apartment building tomorrow. So, so he tells you all of this stuff, and then the investment he sells you is, well, you can't do it all on your own, so why don't you and 60 other people get together and go uh, buy this complex, and I'm going to put the deal together for you. So he, he's going, because I remember when he was pushing this really hard, this is actually super interesting, when he was pushing this really hard, he was actually in the process of, because he doesn't talk about it as much anymore, but he, um, he was in the process of doing the non-incredited 5000 10000 $50,000 funds. And so he would, he would give all this advice to people and the people that would call on his show would have liquid of a million bucks, liquid of 500000 liquid of whatever. And then he would tell right after the phone call, he'd be like, but if you don't have that much money, we're opening up the non-accredited investment account, which you can't. So the education was meant to drive the product that he's trying to sell you. There were no um, principles. There were no fundamentals. There was no, no the, all the stuff, with, all the super boring stuff that nobody wants to listen to that we've been talking to about for the last hour. He didn't um, say any of that stuff. No, he got no. you excited about a product and then put you into his model. And guess who makes not again, not incorrectly, just like a common shareholder, you're bringing right. least amount of value by putting your money into that deal and grants making the cash flow, grants making the leverage and grants making the tax benefits which to be, uh, yeah and to be you know be fair you can say what you want about grant cardone listeners here i mean i think grant cardone's an incredibly smart dude i don't think he's out to screw anybody over but he wants everybody to win and he i mean he's made money on all of his deals so like he's a safe bet but also he's a slow bet he and and he's not a bet of saying if, if you invest with grant you'll never be grant yeah. You have to do what Grant did to become Grant in the first place. Yep, yep, yep. That's yep. what I'm trying to say. Okay. Yep. So no, those are not the investments that will if if you want the long 40-year path, those are better than the stock market. Uh, but but let me let me ask you this though. Hypothetically, okay, let's say for me, like me, for example, right? Let's say I've got five hundred thousand dollars sitting in a bank account right now. Okay. Liquid, free, clear, tax-free money. Like, I mean, it is just ready to rock and roll. I can invest it anywhere I want. I could, in theory, go out and put $500,000 down on a $5 million deal, right? And yep. get an apartment complex. And you're yep. saying that is a less smart idea than a three bedroom, two bath. Man, I remember who said it, but I love the quote of, in theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice there is. It, well, <laughs> Sam Ovens, he's the one that said it all the time. I don't know if he originated, but he goes, yeah, the theory, it works great in theory, but theory and work are very different things. Yes. So, yeah. So I want to come back. I'm going to, I'm going to hold that thought for just a second and answer okay. by coming back to the third piece that we've not discussed, which is your own business. Yeah. What most people don't understand is because people will challenge me this all the time. Oh no, Brad, I know a guy making all this money trading options. Like, cool. That guy is not investing. He's, he's, he's in the business. He is running a business uh -huh. because a business requires time, um, specialized knowledge and attention, yeah. right? So he's doing it actively. The day that dude stops trading options, his money stops. Right. 
Okay. So yeah. I would, I make the argument that if you're, if you had half a million dollars cash and you went to look for an apartment building, it would become a job, not an investment. Cause you would have to go out and get all the specialized knowledge, make all the contacts, spend the time doing it. And if you're doing that, you're not making money in your business and you would make less money trying to do that than running your business. But what, okay, okay. And, and, and the, the, the thought process would be like, well, yeah, but I'll just hire a manager, but you're still going through the whole process. It now becomes a business. So, and most people who are quote unquote real estate investors are not actually real estate investors. They have a job in real estate. People flipping mm -hmm. houses are not real estate investors. They have <laughs> buying, rehabbing, and selling real estate. Right. So understand, and that same thing, most people in the stock market own a small business and a small business is the worst place to be, by the way. It's so grinding, but you own a small business buying and selling stocks. You're not an investor. Yeah. Right? That to become an investor, you do the core four and four pillars without significant time investment. Now, passive income is a lie. It doesn't exist. It is impossible. It's against the laws of nature to make money for no input. Okay. We call it leveraged income. Okay. And the reality is, is your income, all income is created on the back of hyperactive activity, okay? But it doesn't have to be your activity. Mm. So if you're asking me what is the quickest path, and again, I want to frame this in the right question. If you're asking me what the fastest path to becoming financially free is, it's not waiting until you have $500,000 saved up and then trying to go put it into um, a commercial real estate project. The best thing to do is save up $25,000 instead, go use the cheapest, most securest leverage on the planet. We call it, this is the only chance you have to get the government backed middle-class welfare payment check, which is a 30 year mortgage. We'll get into that another time, but that's interesting. $25,000 down payment and buy a $100,000 house in rural St. Louis, because that's the only way we can do it in a, in, and attain all the leverage that's available to us. Hmm. Here's, here's the point. Okay. There are, there are businesses out there like mine. I'll be totally open. This is what we do. Okay. But that should actually make you trust me more if I'm yeah. actually doing I'm telling yeah. you. But if, if, if you take St. Louis, right, how many single family houses are there relative to 60 unit apartment buildings? A lot. Like a thousand to one or yeah. more probably, yeah. probably 10,000 to one. Right. So if I want somebody else's activity to pay my income, it's very difficult to start a business acquiring, rehabbing, and then selling to an investor in a way that can get all core, all core four and four pillars. Right. Buildings. There just isn't enough inventory, okay? Which is why Cardone has to raise capital the way he does and structure the deal the way he does. But there's plenty of single family homes. Yeah. So I can find somebody who their, their sole occupation on this planet is finding, rehabbing, and selling single family homes. It's just an, it's just a business thing. It's an inventory thing. It's the, it's the path of least resistance for me to get all four pillars and all, all core four in my life as quickly as so possible. You, you just find them and say, all right, I want, I want a house. And they're like, sweet, sounds good. And you go, okay, here's yeah. $25,000 down, sign the paperwork for the loan, done deal. Yeah. And how, how do you find the tenants? Are you, are you buying houses that already have tenants in them? See, I don't want to buy a house. I don't want to take any risk. Remember, low risk. So I won't buy a house that's not fully rehabbed, already rented out, and I can look at the at the financials and say this is cash flow positive the day that I buy it. Why the heck would someone sell that? Because they can't own all of the real estate in the United States. They still need a business. 
right? Everybody on the planet needs to, how they make their active income and then they can generate their investments as well. Oh, so, so you're, well, you're buying it from someone whose literal job is to, is. is to sell, like they buy gut or, or revamp if they have to or whatever, find a tenant, put the tenant in and then sell to you. That's their actual yep. job. Yep. And those people exist. Yes, all over the country. All over the country. And that's amazing. Now, what about the thought process of, okay, let's say I've got, let's use this logic well, again. I, 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 oh, I want to okay. make sure. Go ahead. Really yeah, 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 yeah. The reason why I, there's only three ways I ever do real estate. The main one is those single family homes because it's the way I can get as many of the, the levers as I can with the least amount of effort. So I don't yeah. do commercial. I don't do raw land. I don't do developments. I don't flip. I don't do any of that stuff because I'm better at my job than I am at that. So I'm going to do my job, make my money, and then I'm going to, I'm going to invest in a leveraged fashion, right? Not passively because that doesn't exist, but I'm going to create autopilot income or leveraged income off of, off of those elements and that's it. So that's the fastest path if you want to become financial for 10 years or less. Hmm. So your job is buying, I mean, buying these real estate, is that, is that what your job is, is what you're saying? So I'm an owner in a company where that's what we do. So part of Cashflow Tactics, that was what we do. We that's buy. what we do. Okay. So we, I mean, it's much more than that. We raise capital because I don't have all the money. To, I mean, we do 300 of these a year. I don't have yeah. the capital to be able to do that, right? So I raise the money. Okay. Do you raise we, it from banks or do you raise it from independent investors? Uh, we raise it from three main sources, banks, independent investors, and hedge funds. Oh, so again, just, just like Warren Buffett, you can't look at me and say, oh, I'm going to go do what Brad does. Like, okay, cool, but you can do that. Well, I'm going to go do, I'm going to go do what you do, dude. I'm going to become so, you. <laughs> but most people are really bad real estate investors, me included. That's why I partnered with Jimmy, who he's really good at real estate, right? That's his unique ability. And he's really good at it. I don't want it to be mine. What's your, what's your superpower? This, what we're doing right now, man. Mar marketing. Connecting, connecting the dots in. No, I paid other people a lot of money to help me market. So, so you're a relationship, dude. I'm. I have, I mean, I, I guess I'm kind of charismatic and I can have relationships, but kind of, <laughs> I, my superpower is, is connecting all these dots. Like I geeked out and studied money and finance. The I got it. Yeah. That makes sense. It's teaching financial strategy. It's teaching these elements to it. It's not the products, right? It's, yeah. it's strategy behind it. Okay. I want to totally shift gears on what we're talking about here. <sighs> Here, here's the 40 minute run that, there, that 40 minute run, man, we've been going for an hour and a half, man. Well, I know there, but that 40 minutes, that, 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 that cool. segment. Awesome. Okay. So I want to, there's, there's two more things that I want to get to. Uh, we always end with rapid fire questions. And so right before the rapid fire questions, I want to go into Q and a from comments on social media. But before cool. I do that, I want to go into a fascinating world when it comes to money or whatever that a lot of people did ask on social media. A lot of people DM me about, I want to talk about cryptocurrency. Huh? Are you at all versed in that? I, I mean, I know you're more versed than the average person, but on a scale from one to 10, how do you, well do you think you know cryptocurrency? Two. Two, okay. So you're going to play dumb because you are dumb in the grand scheme of things, but you're also smarter than a lot of us. So let's dive into this. Yep. What the heck and why is it so fascinating? It's fascinating because it's the latest shiny object that everybody is paying attention to. I mean, you yeah, understand. But, but I get that. But also, Facebook just announced they're coming out with a cryptocurrency. So oh, it's, okay. isn't, isn't from it around from the law? From standpoint, it's revolutionary. It's incredible, right? 
Cryptocurrency yeah. isn't the exciting part. The technology blockchain. that runs on blockchain, that's amazing and incredible. That's, that's the real value add to the economy is that. So, and I don't want to spend too terribly much time on this, but, but I do want to, I think it's an important topic to, to, to talk about. And that is like different countries have different currencies. Uh-huh. This basically says, I mean, yeah, there's a ton of different type of cryptocurrency, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, Ripple, whatever, you know, whatever it is. Right. But like, essentially, it is not a government specific or a country specific currency. Right. And there's no exchange rate. I can, or there's no, you know, like I can send Bitcoin to someone instantaneously across the world and they just get it. And there's no traction or tracking of it. You know, I don't have to go through a financial, you know, like banking or anything like that. And it's a currency. Now, I don't know if it's viewed as a currency by the U.S. government. I don't know what about it. But why is the U.S. government freaking out about it? Because they're freaking out, right? And why is this this big hype? Is this something that's actually going to be in the future? Is this going to replace the dollar? Like, what are what what? Like, give us an overview of what we need to be looking at here. Oh man, there's a lot of lot of lot of questions there. Okay, so uh, it's not a currency because I mean, where I would define currency would be currencies are, are backed by governments, right? It's mm-hmm. it's created and legalized money, right? right. It's not that, right. It, it, it is money because it's a medium of exchange, right? I can buy, I can, I can receive goods or services from you in exchange for Bitcoin. So it functions, it's playing a role of money, right? Yeah. Um, will it replace the dollar? Man, like only if the, only if the U S government adopts it and then backs it, right? Yeah, Cause but, that's but could, currency is, is whatever the government that, that you are currently under has has sanctioned like, here's here's the true definition of currency whatever you're allowed to pay income taxes <laughs> so that that literally like that's why the dollar is so valuable is it's the only thing you can pay your income taxes with yeah that's the only thing that defines currency okay but let's play speculation here which i know you might not be a huge fan of but i i, I am sometimes yeah. so let's play speculation here facebook comes out with a currency facebook's got two billion with a b people on them right they're huh? global. They're, I mean, that's bigger than any country ever, right? Even China's only got a billion, right? Or whatever it is. Right. So all of a sudden, every user on Facebook is now, I'm changing money with you and you're changing, you know, like we're, we're doing little, you know, buying, selling stuff on the Facebook marketplace. And we got this whole, like, we got this whole economy essentially over here, this whole ecosystem, I should say, on Facebook with Facebook currency. And like, yep, I got to pull it out in order to pay my income taxes on it, right? But essentially... If I start moving money like U.S. dollar into this, and I start leaving that in, that's that is money leaving the the U.S. Yes. economy, or is it is it not? Because Facebook's just getting it. Like what's so that that's why the government is freaking out about it. Is it's it's an exodus. It, it could potentially signal an exodus from from the dollar, right? And as yeah, the utilization of the dollar, and the dollar is only valuable if if I need people use it. Wants money, right? Nobody nobody wants cash. Nobody wants that. I want right. the thing that it can get for me. And I'm willing to take cash because I know I can get it. I can use it for something else. Anything else I want, right. That would be the threat to any currency would be if you get replaced and you're not used anymore, then it's not valuable. Yes. And, and I think that, you know, because obviously there's been things that have tried in the past to replace the dollar unsuccessful. I mean, like, so it's not going to happen. But, but let's cut to, to, I think, where the question would go is when do we need to pay attention to it? Yeah. As, 
big, big, it's the dollar or things like that. Yeah. Right? And let, let me just put a little context behind that. The reason that I look at it and go, well, this could really have some big effect is because Facebook is not just a company. It is a massive distribution network. Yes. So, okay. So we don't need to pay attention to it until it actually becomes a medium of exchange like a generally accepted medium of exchange. And here's what I mean by that. Very, very, very few people are buying, like the, the money that's in your bank account, you're not, you're not saying I'm going to go buy a bunch of dollars so that they go up in value tomorrow, right? right? The, you're measuring your bank account in mentally and all the things that you can go buy with it, right? But people are still buying Bitcoin, holding it, expecting it to go up in value and then turn it back into dollars to get the thing that they want. So it's yeah. still a speculation. Yeah. I was going to say investment, but I caught myself. It's still what most people would say is an investment or a speculation, not a currency. Yeah. Okay? So it's not stable enough to actually replace the way that we're all transacting. Now, some people are using it to transact, but if I'm thinking, if, if in my head, I'm always wondering, should I spend this thing or is it going to be worth more tomorrow than it is today and I should hold on to it? It drags down its utilization. That makes sense. So, so okay. until it stabilizes so much, that's when it's then going to become disruptive. But that's also when the, the upward appreciation potential is also gone because now that's all sort of soaked up and its, it's value has stabilized. So if you're a big gambler, a big risk taker, you can play those markets and, you know or you play the exchange, I should say, and, and, and do that. But for right now, you don't think but there's much to worry about. There, there isn't, well, there isn't much to pay attention to because you don't know which will win over what period of time and you still need dollars to live your life anyway. So if you're saying, should I invest in a cryptocurrency to create wealth? My answer is still no, because it violates the core four four pillars and it's the core four four pillars that gets us financial freedom as quickly as possible. Now, do you have a potential to make a whole bunch of money doing that? Yes, but you have no control. You're taking all the risk and we have no idea what our time frame is for, ha for that to be realized. The people that made money in Bitcoin, um, I did a really interesting uh, video on this. I don't remember where it is. I need to go find it because it was pretty cool. So like I left a dinner party one time where there were three different people, four of us were talking about cryptocurrency and it was interesting because all three of them were sad about their experience in cryptocurrency. Hmm. Right? And here's what happened. They were all in, they were all um, involved in cryptocurrency very, very early. Okay. Yeah. One guy had, um, what do you call it? He was mining cryptocurrency. Hey, 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 hey Brett, don't hit the table. Oh, Excellent. sorry. Okay. Here again. <laughs> oh, so one guy was mining cryptocurrency and he was doing that early on. And then it got prohibitively expensive as it, as it got deeper and deeper and he got out of it. Right. And then the other guy bought it very, very early. It went up. And when it went up by more than he could ever imagine, he sold, right? And then the third guy never got involved at all. And all three of them were sad about their experience in cryptocurrency. They all had regrets, okay? There was, every one of them had a coulda, shoulda, woulda perception about this because the guy who sold is like, oh, I shouldn't have sold. I should have held on to it. The guy didn't get, didn't get into it at all, was regretful that he didn't get into it. And the guy that was mining was like, I should have kept mining or I should have never sold the Bitcoins that I had, right? They all... And, and that's because, again, it's not an investment, it's a speculation, uh. right? And so what we need to understand is you need, if you're trying to create wealth, you've got to focus on, on, on a game that you can win, okay? On something that's going to create the value. And the people that made money in cryptocurrency were the ones that had a business in cryptocurrency. They did it actively, 
okay? And they got into it and they got out of it and they, and they turned it into wealth that actually benefits and changes their life today, okay? Those that bought it and held on to it, and even those that still hold on to their cryptocurrency, they argue are not wealthy. It's, it's external to them. It's still, it's still not changing their life. It's, it's, yeah. it's still all locked up in appreciation, right? Yeah. So those that have speculated on it didn't make any money, maybe lost a bunch of money, but it's still, the jury's out on that. And the ones that made money and it were actively involved in it. So if you enjoy cryptocurrency and want to be a super nerd in it and spend all your time geeking out about it, then maybe cryptocurrency is for you and there's a lot of money potential in it. Yeah. But there's a lot of money in, in becoming a super nerd about Facebook ads. Yeah. And out on out of starting a business in that. Yeah, I, I love what Russell Brunson said because um, during the whole craze of Bitcoin going to whatever it was, $18,000 a coin, Russell uh, made a post about it. He's like, I'm going to get into this whole you know thing. I, I'm going to put some money behind it or whatever. And he did. He put something behind it and made a, I don't remember what the exact comment was, but basically like, yeah, but I still have funnels, right? And then yes. all of a sudden it tanks and goes back down to whatever it was, like four or 6,000 or whatever. And he, it was some snarky post ordered by him and he goes, um, like LOL at Bitcoin, glad I stuck to funnels or something like that, right? And it's guess, like- Guess who was whispering in his ear the whole time? <laughs> like, well, Shut your mouth because you're leading people the wrong way. You better <laughs> be telling them that they still need businesses and funnels. Yeah. So look up this Facebook thing a couple of months ago. He made a post that Ryan and Brad are the only people he trusts with his money. Hey, 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 yeah, those were the whisper. You and your business partner, for those of you that didn't catch that, Brad and his business partner, Ryan, were the people behind that. So, okay, so I, I want to get to questions here. Is there any other thing that you wanted to touch on as far as the crypto is concerned? Or are we kind of done? So, so like I said, just if, if you want it to be a full-time thing for you, awesome. If you want to spend time becoming an expert, you just know what you're getting into. Right. I think like almost anything in this world can become a business. Absolutely. Right? Everything can. Yeah. It's just a matter of there's a difference between a business and investing. That's it. And, and most people don't. There's a difference between business and investing, a difference between investing and speculating. Yeah. So there's, only, there's only three ways to become financially free in 10 years or less. Yep. 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 Okay. Okay. I want to get to some, some of the, the questions of um, that the people asked. And then I have a couple questions for you at the end here, too. Um, we kind of touched on this. Let's do shorter answers on these. Let's yep, not, we'll not, yeah. Now that what I love about this now is we spent an hour and a half creating all the context. Yeah. So can fire off answers and you have context as to why I'm answering behind that. Yeah. It only took us an hour and 45 minutes to get there, but we did it faster than usual. Faster than usual. Um, when do you think the economy is going to collapse and why? Um, the, my feeling I'm making a prediction is you can either predict what's going to happen or when it's going to happen, but not both. So I believe there's a crash coming. I'm surprised it's not already happened, um, but I'm preparing for it. Do you think it's going to happen in the next two years? Um, I, would, I would be surprised if it doesn't happen in the next two years, yes. Okay. Um, do you think, and by the way- all again, these I'm, I'm surprised it's 2019 and it hasn't already happened. So, so what do you know, right? right. Come on, Brad. Um, but there was, a, there was a, all these questions are from Instagram and then we'll get to Facebook questions. Um, do, do you think Trump's reelection will play a part on whether or not the economy stays the way it is, it, whether or not he gets reelected or not? A thousand percent. So a very interesting thing is a couple of months ago, the market wobbled, right? And then for just these mysteriously magical reasons, it all of a sudden just went right back to where it was and is normal and birds are quiet and everything is wonderful. That I don't think that has, I don't think that's um, coincidence that we're also leading into election time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. 
When is the right time for millennial entrepreneurs to start focusing on investing money? If you're a young entrepreneur that owns a business, when is the right time to start investing? After your business is making, depending on your profitability, after your business is making somewhere between a quarter of a million and a million dollars a year. You shouldn't, you shouldn't focus on it. It's too easy if you're a millennial entrepreneur. Uh, Well, first I want to define like, if you're a lifestyle entrepreneur, that's different, right? Like build a business. It's way too easy to make a quarter of a million dollars and be profitable enough to then turn your attention. You have to make money first. Quarter million profit or quarter million revenue? Qu- quarter million revenue. Um, I, if, you're not, if you're not taking home um, $100,000 a year, whether it's in your job or in your business, then you're just not making enough money. And it's too easy to make that much money. Okay. So $100,000 take home is roughly when you're going to start thinking about investing. And how much, uh, because people's lifestyles greatly differ. I live off of like, you know, $3,500 a month. And I I I wish I could live in my mom's basement too, man. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that's of my personal expenses that I don't write off on business, right? My car is a business expense, you know, everything of that nature. But like, how much liquid cash should I have saved up before I start thinking about investing? What's that bare minimum number? Uh, you need your own reserves together. So if you, if you have a, a job, you just need your personal reserves. If you have a business, you need your reserves um, and business reserves set aside before any dollar should ever be allocated. Uh, we, we teach there's three fundamental pieces you need place for your foundation before you invest. One is protection, one is liquidity, and one is an adequate hedge. You need those three elements in place. Um, specifically around liquidity, um, less than three months reserves makes me really, really nervous. Most people ought to have around six months of both of those buckets taken care of before a dollar should be put toward investing. So if I have six months worth of business, I could run my business for six months and I can run my life, I could live for six months above and beyond that, any cash that I can go and invest. That, that's capital that's now on the table to go invest. And if you ask me where to put that money, I'm going to say, Josh, why aren't you growing your business first? Right. Yep. 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 Okay. What's the most money you've ever personally invested at one time? Um, at one time, I think $150,000. That's it. In a single investment. That's it. Yeah. That's incredible. What's the most money? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, of my personal money, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, of your yep. personal money, yeah. Yep. Um, when working for Goldman Sachs, what was the craziest thing you ever did? The craziest thing? Cra- crazy meaning like mind-blowing to the average human being. Uh, I quit. <laughs> no, like seriously. So I, I, was, I was there a very, very short period of time. Um, and it was, it was the depths of the 2008 economic disaster. And I was in meeting after meeting and seeing what was going on behind the scenes. And we were in a, like a general company wide, like this is my Jerry Maguire moment, right? So a couple days before I was walking into work and our building was right next to Lehman Brothers. And we were walking into work and everybody was filing with cardboard boxes out of the Lehman building. So Lehman had just overnight disappeared. Yeah. Right? So this is what's happening, right? And I spent the next week or two sitting in the lobby getting zero work done, watching the monitors, wondering if Goldman was going to be next. And it was me. And next to me was a guy that had been there a year. Next to me was a guy that had been there five years. Next to him was a guy that had been there 10 years. We were all just as scared. Okay? And that's when I started to realize, well, wait a minute. There's no security in this. This is all a a big – because the dude that's been here 10 years is just as scared as I am. And so that was my Jerry Maguire moment. I was like, I'm done. I got to get out of here. And I'm going to leave into – 
like I'm going to, I'm going to walk away from the contacts of Goldman Sachs, the reputation of Goldman Sachs into the worst economy that has ever hit the United States. Why on earth did you do that? Why wouldn't you just waited it out a little bit? <sighs> because I'm crazy. Um, I love that about you. I'm the same way. So like, I, are you impulsive? I'm, I'm not impulsive. I would call it, I am, I'm stubbornly principled that once I see a principle being violated, nothing else matters. And you just I go like, that. like you, you are a principled person enough to know if, if, if it checks off in your head, once you have made a decision, like in your head that this is the right option or this is bad and I need to get away from it there. Like, it's just, there's and no other question to be made. You just, there do. isn't, there isn't any other reality. When I say principled, it's not, it's not just like right, wrong, good. Right. right. If my framework tells me this is the outcome, it doesn't matter what other noise is being filtered in there. That becomes the right outcome. And that's what I saw was it, it fit my framework. It was the right outcome. And it was only an inevitability that if I just stuck to the principles, I'd get the outcome. Okay. Next question. And, and this one's actually from me specifically on this. What would you say to the person? That, I'll, I'll, sign, I'll sign a headshot for you and send it to your family. Oh, thank you so much, Brad. I, <laughs> I want to hang it on my wall. Um, I actually should start doing that, taking picture, pictures with everybody that you guess with. Anyway, um, you're, I'm a young entrepreneur. Okay. And by I, I don't mean necessarily me, but we can use me if, you know, we want to for context or whatever. I'm a little bit different, but like, I'm a young entrepreneur. I'm starting out. I'm in, you know, I'm in my business. Right. And let's say I'm making 50, $60,000 a year. And I'm, I'm making more than that, obviously, but for the sake of the scenario, I got a dream, man. I want to go and I have this really big dream. I want to be uh, an entertainer or I want to build a, uh, Think different theory podcast, or I want to build, um, I don't know, I'm passionate about music or I'm passionate about photography or, or agency work, whatever, whatever that, that may be. I'm making $50,000, $60,000 a year. I've been smart with my money, right? And I'm at this point now where I've, you know, I can kind of go all in. I've got maybe 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 saved up, whatever that number is, right? This person. And they're like, okay, I don't really have a, a real business going, right? Like I kind of do, but like, and I, I'm making money with it, but I'm at this point where I can go, all right, I can take all of my cash, this 20, 30, $50,000 that I've saved up and dump it in and blow it up and, and, and go all in, right? Uh -huh. Or I can go and I can, you know, big risk, but I'm chasing my dream. I'm all in. I'm good at this. I'm passionate about this. Yep. Or I can take a much more conservative route and be smart, go a whole lot slower, maybe make a little bit less money, um, and maybe play the smart game financially per se to where I'm not risking my $50,000, $60,000 in cash. But I mean, let's take me example. And obviously the number for me would be a little bit higher, but if I wanted to do this and I'm like, I, want, I have a dream over here I'm gonna dump all my money into, what's your advice? Are you, are you the, of the mindset that says, you know what? You can make that $50,000 risk, but the smarter thing to do would be to take that $50,000 and start buying income producing assets, take the slower route, put your dream not on hold, but like slow it down. Or are you the type of person that's like, dude, if that's your dream, just go for it. Uh, okay. So yeah, two answers. Uh, investing always comes after um, following your dream of whatever's going to create income. So you are your greatest investment. Your business is, you're your greatest asset. Your business is your greatest investment. So that always comes before investing. I love that. Things always secondary. Um, but point number two is I don't believe the risk trade-off that you're talking about. Um, I think the reality behind where we see like 
the risks I took on the outside perceived to be really large, but on the inside were very methodically organized. Yeah. And most people that jump, it looks, it, it's all, it was still scary for me, right? But it wasn't a blind leap of faith. And most people's jump isn't a blind leap of faith. I would say before you take a leap of faith, like you get paid, whether it's in investing or in business, in proportion to the amount of risk you can eliminate, okay? So my company right now, we spend between 20 and $30,000 a month on Facebook. If I didn't have a team behind me and three years of experience and everything that I'm doing, that would be an, like for the average person to just wake up in the morning having never run a Facebook ad, to drop 30 grand into Facebook, it would be incredibly risky, right? But I have data, I have processes, I have teams, and I can spend that with virtually zero risk. Yeah. That makes sense? Yeah. So I would, what I would do is understand that we need to systematically eliminate risk and I only take a risk when I have a disproportionate positive payoff to my negative outcome. So let's take you, I know this isn't you, but I'm going to make fun of you for just a little second. Yeah, do it. Yeah. If I had 20 grand and was living in my mom's basement yeah. and could go back and get a job at any time and I had no other obligations, then that choice has, has a, a disproportionate high payoff and if you lose it all, you just go back to making, you just go make a little bit more and like your life isn't all that different. Right? Try again, right? But for me, who I'm married, I have a mortgage, I have five kids at home and I'm, I'm in my mid thirties, for me to take all of my capital and make a decision, the, the, the downside payoff is disproportionately high to what I would get out of it. Yeah. So that would be a dumb decision. So gotcha. set up your decisions for a disproportionately high payoff and limit your downside. And so then- so, so what you're telling me is I should go move back into my parents' basement and, and yeah, that's <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll, I'll take but your does that concept make sense. Yeah, like, no, no, that makes perfect sense. App, what is your downside relative to your realistic, yeah, like fact-based upside? And if the upside is proportionally larger than a downside, you can go for it. Cool. Cool. Okay. Um, last question before we get to rapid fire questions. For the average person that is just starting out, and let's assume that, because I, I know my audience pretty well, but I also know based on data that my audience, there, there's a good chunk of my audience that's in their late 20s, early 30s that does have a family, right? Like they are married and or have a family of some sort. And some of them work jobs or they work in a job-like setting, meaning they're an entrepreneur, entrepreneur, but it's really more like a freelancer position, right? Like, yeah. They go, they work with a client, they get paid, whatever, right? And so they're making sixty to $85,000 a year. They have family, so, you know, overhead, loan, mortgage, like a car payment, yada, yada. They're not taking home that much. I mean, for, for definition-based purposes, it's just above paycheck to paycheck, okay? Yep. So for the person like them, that is maybe in their mid thirties or even, you know, say for example, and, and I think it's okay for me to say this about my parents, like my parents are in their mid fifties, right? And they made poor financial decisions, right? It doesn't make them bad people. I love them to death. They taught me more than anything, but like, you know, they made poor financial decisions. And so their question is, Hey, we're in our mid fifties. We have no retirement, right? And, you know, these people that are in their mid thirties, maybe even late thirties that have no retirement because they weren't taught about it. Yeah. Something went bad. Where does, where does one start? Where does one start? No where, where does one at. start? Like to, to, to become, to have enough for retirement even, or to have enough to become financially free. I know you're against the anti or you're anti retirement, which I, I love, but like, I want to be financially free in 10 years. 
I don't have a ton of excess cash. I don't have a ton of savings. I don't have a 401k. Like, where do I go? And, and for all intents and purposes, I'm in a job-like setting. Maybe I'm on Twitter. But- yep. Nobody cares more about your money than you. If you're asking the question, it's exposing a, a liability uh, in your financial IQ. So you have to raise your financial IQ first. The reason why you don't have money is you don't understand money. The reason why you don't have enough income is you don't understand value. You have to, you have to raise those first and then the dollars will follow, the outcome will follow. So I, I strongly believe like we get really good at analyzing our, our asset balance sheet, like what assets we have, what liabilities we have, what our, what our net worth is. We're really, really bad at analyzing, mirroring everybody's property value balance sheet is what I call your human life value balance sheet, okay? Any asset on your property value balance sheet is mirrored by an asset on your human life value balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Anything you, any liability you have on your property value balance sheet is mirrored by a liability on your human life value balance sheet. So mm-hmm. anything that you don't have that hasn't manifested itself in its physical form, it's because you have a liability on your human life value balance sheet that's holding you back. So it's yeah. figuring out what that is and it's converting that to an asset so that it's like everything in this world was first created spiritually or conceptually, right? However you want to look at it, like it started as an idea and then became form. Money mind, yeah. is the same exact thing, which is why we're like spirit animals of each other. Cause like your think different podcast, think different theory. This whole idea is it has to start there. It has to start in the mind. It has if to. Any, if anybody gives you a different answer, they're trying to sucker you into something. Yeah. There isn't a solution. It starts there. So it would be invest in yourself wherever that deficit. I take a good long look at your human life value balance sheet, identify the issue and invest there. I like that. I like that. How much, I mean, I, I would say that uh, gotta be step one or, or not, maybe not step one. Obviously we just cover step one, but I gotta, I would imagine that early on in the beginning, increasing cash flow has gotta be a step in there. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the, the four tenets of cash flow tactics is produce, protect, profit, prosper. Money mm. goes in that order. Produce, produce production protect. comes first, protect what we make, then we can actually invest. Per, okay. Okay. All right. Um, let's go to rapid fire questions now. We'll wrap it up. This has been amazing, by the way. Amazing. Uh, rapid fire questions. What is, uh, what's the single thing, piece of financial advice that you would give your younger self, 18 year old self. Dollars follow value. Dollars follow value. I like that. Okay. Single big, single greatest regret or mistake that you have made in your life. That I went so long into my life, not investing in myself, believing that, that other people cared more, that I needed to follow the right system, not giving myself permission. I mean, it wasn't until I was in my early 30s that I really got serious about investing in the greatest asset, which is me and doubling down on who I am and what I can do rather than thinking that investing was external to me, that I had to give it to my money to somebody else or, or it would be irresponsible to invest in myself. Investing in yourself, meaning educational, health related. Yeah. I kind of break it into three categories, mindset, skill sets, or networks, right? That's that's amazing. Yeah. And any of those three categories. I love that. My first big one, like the first massive check I wrote was to Russell Brunson's inner circle. Which was what? It was 25 grand or something at the time, right? It's more now. Yeah. That's a, that's a big check. Um, Okay. 
uh, which actually leads me to my next question. How much, how, how important on a scale from one to 10 has your network played into your success? I mean, 11. I mean, it, it, but it, but it goes in that, it goes in that order. Mindset yeah. starts first. Like you're only valuable to a network if you have something to add to that network. So you need mindsets that. and you need skill sets. And then it's the network that gives your skill set a place to go. I love that. People need to understand that more. You only, yeah, you got to need skill sets first. Okay. I like that. Yep. All right. Uh, favorite airline to fly? Delta. I love Delta. Yeah. You have the American Express I, Platinum card? I like to know my oh, you have the black card, don't you? I don't have a black card Oh, yet. you have a, you have a platinum card. But yeah. You're not, you're, not, you're not that cool yet. No, not that cool I'm yet. telling you, if you start a podcast and you start producing content, you'll probably be there. That's what some really smart guy told me the other day. <laughs> um, favorite food? Oh, you know, here's the really interesting thing about me. I actually don't like food. That's a really hard answer. I, I don't. Yeah, that's. I, you saw me at Ruth's Chris. How much did I finish my plate? Yeah, you didn't. I, I ate most of your asparagus. Yep. I don't, I don't actually get that much enjoyment out of food. Oh, man, that's a bummer. Um, you told me at a conversation that we had one time that, quote, your business partner drives a shopping cart. You like to drive horsepower. What is your car of choice? My BMW M3 is my current car of choice, current. accompanied very closely by my uh, Ford Raptor. Oh, Ford Raptors are freaking nice. Yeah. Do you have a dream car that you don't have yet? Uh, the next car on the docket is a Porsche 911. Oh, uh, do, do you know Taylor Welsh? Uh, I don't. Um, and do you know of him? He co-founder of Traffic and Funnels and he just bought a oh. Porsche 911. And I think it was a 911, Porsche 911 Turbo, I'm pretty sure, or Spider something. I don't know. It was a Porsche. And he said, it is seriously the sickest car he's ever driven. And he's owned McLarens and all sorts of crazy stuff. He's yeah. like, it's comfortable and it's sporty. So I can't that's wait to my, do that. Time. I'll have to come out and visit you. We can drive it around. Um, right. And then uh, last question that I have for you then is, oh, a bucket list thing that you want to accomplish in your life. Uh, the next one that I'm teeing up is... I'm going to, so snowmobiles are kind of my hobby that I've loved all, ever since I was a kid and I do yeah. pretty aggressive backcountry stuff. There's a group that, that you can buy and go in August to Chile and ride snowmobiles in the mountains of Chile because it's winter down there when it's summer up here. So with Chris Brandt and his team, I'm going to go ride. That's my next bucket list item is to ride snowmobiles in Chile in August. That's amazing. Have yeah. so much fun, dude. Yeah. Make sure you bring a camera. No, I will. I'll have a GoPro. Good, good, good. All right, last question that I have for you. We always end every single podcast with this question, every interview that we've done ever. Um, you're at the end of your life. Fast forward, you're on your deathbed right now. And everything that you've done, every person that you've touched indirectly or directly or whatever, every one of your accomplishments is gone. However, every single person that you have touched and influenced, whether it be directly or indirectly, you get to leave them with one final message, one word of wisdom. What is that piece of advice that you leave them? Oh my gosh. It's not, it's not, it's not a very deep question. Pretty no, light. That's like an easy, really like quick one. Like what car do I like? Right. Um, like for me, the, the core of who I am and why I am is my belief that I'm a son of God. Mm. And so if, if I would, I would instill that everybody is a son or daughter of God. And that's where I get my intrinsic value that is independent of who I've touched or what I've influenced or what I've accomplished. Cause all of those are gone. That is what is what then blossoms into lay, Like that's like the kernel of all my knowledge and wisdom and belief and, and outcomes and actions and everything centers on. I am a son of God. That's amazing. 
and I would align very much with you there. My mom, I asked my mom that question and her response was, uh, uh, love God and keep his commandments. Yeah. That's, that's the final thing. So I love that. Brad, thank you. Oh my gosh, this was amazing. Episode 100 of Think Different Theory Podcast. Guys, give it up for, I need my button. Round of applause for Brad. Brad, yay. Brad, seriously though, man. It's honor, man. This was oh, a lot of fun. This was so very much fun. fun. So good. Thank you so much. Guys, um, if you want to find out more about Brad, Brad, where can they find you? Pitch yourself uh, here. So Cashless Tactics uh, is where it, we have a website there. Um, our YouTube channel is where, like, if you want to, we break down a lot of these concepts. So our YouTube channel is a great place to follow us. And then on all, like, I don't, I know we have instant channel thingies, like Insta faces and whatever that is, but I'm sure you can find us on Facebook, Cashless Tactics. Okay, and, okay. And, I- Instagram. I want to, I, I want to butt in here guys. Recently I had a call with Brad <laughs> and Brad goes, yeah, I don't know how to do that Insta tweet. And I'm just like, ah, no, they kept doing it because you could just see my face every time I did it. Um, I, Brad is about to come out and I'm going to put you on the spot here. Can I get a commitment from you? You're about to launch a podcast. As long as my business partners don't shut me down. September is when our podcast is coming out. Okay. You heard it here. September, his podcast. He's going to have an awesome YouTube channel. It already is awesome, but it's going to be even more awesome. Instagram is going to blow up. I'm, I'm pushing them in the right direction, guys, because I, I believe that this needs to get out in the world. And so we're working with them on that. Brad, thank you so much, guys. Go to cashflowtactics.com or their YouTube channel. Look up Brad on Facebook. He's kind of boring on Facebook. So maybe go to cashflowtactics.com, but that'll change. Um, Brad. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate your time. I know it is valuable. Two straight hours. That's hard to do for anyone, uh, much less someone like you. So thank you, man. I appreciate it. Hey, uh, it was an honor being on. Absolutely. Guys, this has been episode number 100 of the Think Different Theory podcast. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you so much for the downloads. Make sure to share this with a friend. There is not a single one of you listening right now that does not have at least one or two or 300 people that you know in your life that could not benefit from this episode. So please feel free to share this out. Go visit Brad. Follow him everywhere. Thank you, thank you, thank you guys so much for your support with the podcast. As always, hustle, hustle. God bless. Do not be afraid to think different because those of us that think different are going to be the ones that change the world, even if that world is just your own. And that has been proved here today uh, with today's episode and every single one of the 100 episodes that we have had. I love you all and I will see you on the next episode. Take it easy, fam. Peace. Yo, what's up, guys? You've been listening to the Think Different Theory with myself, Josh Forty, which I like to call a new paradigm of thinking. And real quick, I got a question for you. Did you like this episode? If you did, I want to ask a huge favor. See, the biggest thing that helps this podcast grow and that will spread this message of positivity and making the world a better place is if you leave a review, a rating, and subscribe to the podcast. What that does is it basically tells the platforms that this is out on that you like my stuff and that I'm I'm doing something right. So if you could take like three seconds out of your day and subscribe, leave a rating and a review, I would be forever grateful for you. Also, I want to hear from you. I want to know your feedback, your ideas and your questions for future episodes. So be sure to hit me up on Instagram in the DM at Josh 40 or via email contact at thinkdifferenttheory.com.